I've been kind of so obsessed with it because I'm like very obsessed with everything else that's there that I'm like, oh, halfway through the 64 World's Fair, like Thailand became Thailand. It was Siam and they had to literally cross out on a marble pavilion facade, like, and they put a little Thailand And it's hilarious that I'm like, that is obscene. The world was happening, even though they really tried to say in the World's Fair, nothing's happening. The world is static. We can control it. And it's just could not be further from the case <laughs> for me as far as what was going on with civil rights and the world right. and international politics. Hey there, friends. Welcome to Field Pod. This is a Field Projects podcast focused on art, activism, and our thoughts on living a good life. I'm Chris Racanello, and I'm the co-director of Field Projects, along with Jacob Rhodes and the host and editor of this podcast. This is our fourth episode of the podcast, and we're thrilled to present a special guest on this podcast episode. Lynn Malajewski, the archivist of the Queen's Museum, who joined Karamar Scheffler, Johanna Herr, and myself for a discussion about the Flushing Meadows World's Fairs, speculative communities, architects playing God and amending the archive, as well as racist architecture. This was conducted as a roundtable at Field Projects Gallery, so you might hear some ambient noises and questions from guests. Before that, Jacob and I talk about the residency space and give some week's podcast recommendations and a comedy show and more. After the roundtable discussion, you'll also hear our list of shows to go see for the week. If you've been enjoying this podcast, I would encourage you to like and subscribe to it as well as share it with a friend. This would be really helpful for us as a new, young art podcast. So the more you're able to share this, the more that we can get up there in the charts and the more that we can share what we have to say with everyone else. So, okay, here's my chat with Jacob Rhodes about our week, which is then followed by the roundtable discussion with Kara, Johanna, and Lynn. What's up? <laughs> uh, we're sitting here in Field Projects on our uh, disgusting futon that we have in our residency space. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't start with that. <laughs> we're considering getting rid of this futon. So, uh, I don't know. Listeners can tell us if they think we should get rid of it. Is a disgusting futon in a studio the right move? Or a couch? A futon warrior. Yeah. Anyways, Big Circus. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Chris Racanello. And I'm Jacob Rhodes. I'm hanging out with Jacob in Field Projects today because we had a whole bunch of gallery shit to do. We very nicely got our Jen Beckman flat file. Yes, Are we calling Jen, it the Jen Beckman flat Jen file? Jen Beckman <laughs> donated a flat file to us. To Field Projects, which is excellent. Which was very kind. We fucked up the back of my Prius moving it here. Because that's what you do with the Prius. Yep, that's what you do. You just beat it until it dies. (laughs) (laughs) So one thing that I listened to this week that I think everyone should listen to is somewhat related to our podcast that we had last week, which is this through line podcast. And the episode is called Before Row, The Physician's Crusade. And 
first of all, just a quick warning that the very beginning does talk like pretty graphically about suicide. And there is a lot of descriptions of botched abortions. So like be prepared. But I do think it's a very important topic. Also, Throughline is just like one of the most amazing history podcasts that I've ever listened to. It tells the stories and narratives of history in just such a moving way and really connects historical events to the present in a factual but still emotional way. So this particular one, though, is about before abortion was controversial, and then the way that the interaction of doctors wanting to take over the place of midwives actually became the moment when abortion became a controversial topic, and the social intersections that were happening at that time. So definitely go check it out. The movement of obstetrics is talked about. They talk about Horatio Storer and the campaign to make abortion illegal. For everyone who is interested in abortion history right now, I think that's an excellent thing to go listen to. Do you have anything like on a lighter note to talk about than that? <laughs> well, I was just thinking about uh, both of us listened to Maintenance Phase. And oh, God. Maintenance Phase is an amazing podcast. Yeah, and it really uh, brings to light a lot of uh, fat phobia and how accepted fat phobia is and how encouraged fat phobia is in our society. The two hosts didn't originally, Aubrey and Mike, didn't originally intend it to be only about anti-fat bias. Um, but in a lot of ways, it, it constantly intersects with that. Really, mm. it's a podcast about dieting culture in the United States. And so it touches on all sorts of things, like the BMI. I don't know. What else can you think of? Yeah, um, trend diets, Dr. Oz. Oh, God, um, Dr. Oz is running for office people, so go listen to the Dr. Oz episode yes. on maintenance phase. Like, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. yeah. He's such a fucking fraud. <laughs> I yeah. mean, he's not a fraud. He really is a doctor, but he's a fraud in he the sense that he just platforms <laughs> these, like, ridiculous conspiracy theory-like people. Anyway, basically just like looking at really dubious characters. Yes. As um, earlier, I described it as quackery. Quackery. Yes. <laughs> when we were talking before, I mean, and as I said to you then, I'll say again, like quackery is a really old fashioned term, but I actually think we should bring it back <laughs> <laughs> because like quackery really does describe just like so many things today, you know, yeah. quackery, not just applied to medicine, but like applied to people's News. ways of being <laughs> <laughs> ways of being yes yeah um I'm the so quackerist. i also think the wellness industry is like such a huge force in the world um such a huge force in the way that people interact with each other especially in the united states so maintenance phase is a great recommendation that i totally didn't think about at all yeah i mean we you and i listen to it religiously um, yeah, I listen. I re-listen to the episodes. I find sometimes when I listen to a podcast that like my brain will wander for a little while, especially because I tend to listen to them like while I'm going running. So I go back and re-listen to them to make sure that I understood all of the information that they're putting in. They have a super fun conversation, but it is jam-packed with like important information. Yes. Yeah. Great rapport between the two people. They're they're hilarious. And they're hilarious while talking about a very important and uh, serious conversation. So, yeah, totally. Maintenance phase. Check it out. Chris, what are you reading? 
I'm working on this portable altars project. So I'm doing a lot of reading for that right now. Um, but really like one of the more interesting upcoming projects that I have happening is that I've been working on this, a project on this town in France called Conque. It's a little village in the south of France. And we are going to be having a conference and then workshops. And one of the day's workshops will be at the Morgan Library. One of the days will be at the Met Fifth Avenue. And then our final day will be at the Cloisters for the entire day doing like workshops on various different topics related to medieval sites. Um, and who, this is just um, the group of academics are, do, are doing and attending the workshops. These are yeah. not open to the public. So right? there's a university here, which is CUNY and also Rutgers University. So the CUNY Graduate Center. There's the Herziana in Rome. There's Masaryk in Brno. And then there's also Poitiers. God, I think that's everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And so we've also had a lot of international visiting scholars, which has been really, really such a great opportunity. It's an excellent project to be on, but I'm really excited about the summer conference. So I'm sure that you'll hear more about that upcoming. That's kind of what I've been thinking about. That's what you've been working on? That's what I've been working on this week. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I've been working on a lot of other stuff this week too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We have Albert Perez's show coming up. So... We just sent our wonderful intern Angelica out to go pick up some paint to repaint the walls because they're changing from Johanna Herr's mint parfait green to a like green bamboo shade. So come into Field Projects, you'll see a different shade of green in our next show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I've been working on Albert's show. I've been working on the Conk Project. I don't know how interesting it is for me to talk about all of these things, but whatever. So those are my things. Have you been reading or doing anything lately, working toward any projects? Well, that's a good question. I, yes, there is a project that I'm working towards, and I, maybe, and maybe we'll cut this out because it's not a lot of information, but I wanted to do a show about haunted paintings or cursed paintings, artworks. I think we should keep it in. I've spoken to Liz Zito. Yeah. Because she had been posting a bunch of scary clown paintings, which I believe are haunted. And she, and I was asking the question, do you think this is haunted? Like, just look at it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we kind of went back and forth and I was like, this is something that I've been wanting to do for a long, for like many years, because mm-hmm. like all sort of myths, you can talk about culture through them. I don't know what the most famous haunted paintings are or yeah. things like that. Anyway, that's what I'm going to be probably researching. Yeah, that's super cool. Keep your ears open for more information on this, but um, our intern Angelica is curating a show at the end of August that goes up. So, you know, we should and all... I also keep your ears open for this. You're working on you're working on a project that you're hoping to show soon. Yes, yes, I am also working on a project that I'm hoping to show very soon. Mm-hmm. More information about that forthcoming. Oh, yeah. We went to a comedy show yesterday. <laughs> yes, it was very spontaneously that we it decided. It was spontaneous. <laughs> it was. It was very spontaneous. There's a, a comedy fun. place down uh, the street from Field Projects, and we went to it. Yeah, and it was called... Uh, it was called Cooking with Catherine, and I believe it's up every Friday. She's performing through May. So I think this will be the last week you could go see her. But there was also like kind of a wonderful improv, musical improv, um, <laughs> which I would expect to be fucking awful, but was very good. 
uh, they got these like teenagers to read their notes <laughs> from their phone. And it was like all dating app stuff. And so they did a skit about dating apps. They had these two women who were sisters and they had one come up and describe her day and then they acted out and performed her day it was just like Those, really yeah. quite wonderful and charming yeah it was very charming and the, the two sisters were just members of the audience the two na- teenagers were just members of the audience um and so they were like fishing for things to do improv about and that's how they went about it it was actually really funny and and very i don't know com- when comedy's done well it's it feels like yeah, sort of learn something and you sort of rethink about something or kind of get a new yeah. em- empathetic yeah. sort of those kids experience. it was really amazing to watch these two 17-year-olds watch their dating conversation like play out on the stage yeah and they were like they were just i mean it made me be super jealous that i didn't grow up in new york as a teenager <laughs> i was like fuck this like uh, yeah. they get to have this amazing experience <laughs> They also seemed like they were such good friends. Yeah, like, they, they yeah. Seemed very sweet. It, it was like two young boys. I think yeah. they both identified as like boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. Yeah, it was really sweet. So that was great. You know, Asylum is. I think isn't that the old UBC or whatever the fuck? <laughs> Upright Citizens Brigade. Yes. Right. Isn't <laughs> yes. that what it was called? Yes. And so, but Asylum is now there. So it's in the basement underneath this like giant grocery store. Um, if you're um, at Field Projects, it's yes. on the same street. It's on 26th. And 8th Avenue. Yeah, between 8th. No, 8th. on 8th Avenue. It's, between 8th no. and 9th. Yeah. yeah. It's, on 26th, between 8th and 9th. And yeah, yeah. So Closer if you come to out to Field Avenue. Projects, it's kind of a fun thing to go do after. <laughs> yeah. If you want to go like stop out and see some comedy. They usually have like 7.30 shows and 9.30 shows. Exactly. Um, so highly recommended. Uh, we all need some fucking levity in our lives right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a depressing, depressing time. So today, what you're going to hear from us, other than us just rambling about our lives and what we did this week and all of the meetings and the pain in the ass of moving this flat file, which was <laughs> insane. <laughs> uh, and, you know, getting kicked out of a bar because I'm a woman, whatever. <laughs> different that's a, that's <laughs> a, a bigger story thing for another time <laughs> and all of our normal things that we talked to you about at the beginning of the pod we also wanted to introduce you a little bit to what we talked about this week and the interview that you're about to hear with lynn malachewski and johanna her and Kara scheffler so was there anything that like really stood out to you in this round table I mean, really, the, the thing that stuck with me was Lynn was talking about joining the Queen's Museum as the archivist, the Queen's Museum during the pandemic as the archivist and going through the collection of the world's fairs that they have there and trying to come up with new, interesting ways for the public to interact with them. And the, she was telling us about the panorama of New York that's there that hasn't been updated in a long time. And so they're, they're thinking about ways of updating it and using technology to make it more interactive. Kind of sounded really, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm always interested in how to engage the public to get more involved with what's in front of them and, and different ways of learning. 
Yeah, I guess we've been thinking a lot about archives this week because yes. not only have we did we talk about this in the roundtable with an archivist who's an archivist for a major museum, but also, you know, we did just get this flat file. And one of the reasons that we got the flat file is because Jacob had this really brilliant idea about having the residency space be, we don't represent any artists, but we would really love to have a sort of permanent collection that's not for sale, that is for curators to come in and work with. And so we ask each one of our residents to leave us a work of art. Uh, but we need a way of <laughs> properly storing those works of art. So we do have, of course, all of our regular storage space, but you really, we decided we need a flat file just mm -hmm. in order to really take care of the works that are gifted to us so that they can also be properly viewed by curators who want to, or artists who want to work with them for an exhibition so that we can really present them nicely to them. Yeah, and that's just another aspect of trying to build community uh, through field projects, which is just a as Chris had said a an archive of work of people who had come through here basically are gifting them to to field projects and so are, are making them available for others okay I'm just saying the same thing that you said so that's okay <laughs> maybe you're, you're re-articulating what I said <laughs> uh I okay so the reason that I think that it's good I should say <laughs> is it it tackles a different level of the art world, which is the curation and collections level. It's trying to include that and make that accessible to artists by making, by creating this collection with other artists, it makes it a stronger collection because there's all sorts of different levels of work in it. And, you know, and it's like the, it's like the lottery. Like I'm sure sooner or later, one of these artists is going to get really big and then that's going to bring a lot of eyes over to the residency and the collection and therefore bring other eyes to the other residents and the other things that are going on here. It, once again, it's the, the goal is to try to lift up the, or, or bring more attention to the artists who we think are, do not get the, the attention that they deserve. Yes, totally you know, that's agree. That's a better way of putting Yeah. Yeah, and just thinking about, you know, like the show that we have up right now is very historically minded. Stacy Kranitz, our current resident also, and even our next resident who's coming up, Jag Root, also is working on this kind of project that plays with history and memory and mythology and how history and memory and mythology are constructed and interact with each other. Um, Stacy is working on the history of Appalachia right now in her project that she's been working on at the gallery. Um, where she's looking at both historical photographs and her work and thinking about, you know, the history of Appalachia as the site of poverty porn, basically, that's always used as like the poster child for poverty porn in the United States. So Johanna and Kara's project also is very historically minded. So I think just these kind of questions around archiving and preserving memory and what gets incorporated into the archive is so important. And that's something that Lynn really went into talking about in the roundtable discussion. You know, yeah. she talked about like how she's been rethinking the way that the World's Fair was archived and asking people to bring new materials to be added to their collection there at the Queen's Museum, which I think is just so critical and important and is kind of exactly like what we're talking about here is like, how do you make a record that rethinks and presents history in a better way? 
So that was definitely like one really big through line. <laughs> That's why through line podcast is called through line. Um, <laughs> nice. And uh, so bringing it back to the fucking first thing that we talked about. And so what else? What else did we talk about? I mean, we talked a lot about housing and racism and segregation. We didn't talk so much about education in the round table, but we did end up talking about different pavilions and we ended up focusing on mm. the white flight pavilion, urban renewal pavilion, and the transportation pavilion. And really like generally just talking about the idea of the architect as God and the urban planner as this like, abstraction that never actually touches or talks to real people which is such a huge fucking problem and i should clarify that i mean at this time and around the world's fair no one was going out and doing like community reconnaissance and asking people what they really need right mm -hmm. like the jacob reese building just went up no one asked for it to be built that way and it was all part of this like racist like segregationist fucking model of city building welcome to america <laughs> jesus well <laughs> yeah yes and it perpetuates still happening today in different ways in all aspects of our lives yeah and we have to figure out solutions as creatives for how to fucking change that so <laughs> uh so stay tuned for some answers and I, I loved meeting Lynn. Uh, this was, we're so grateful that she agreed to come and talk with all of us, uh, Johanna and Kara and I. Jacob was there. You're not going to hear him talk as much because Jacob was our tech person. He was fronting the Instagram live, doing like a bunch of other stuff, making sure everybody in the gallery was okay, all of that. Thanks for doing that, Jacob. Sure. Behind the scenes. Behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So we're really excited to present our roundtable to you. You'll hear us chatting in the beginning about the actual show. Um, and then we'll go into having our roundtable discussion. After that, you can look forward to hearing a couple of show recommendations from Jacob and I that are shows to go see right now. Enjoy. Yeah. So excited. So I think that we thought that we'd talk um, about just the individual pieces in the show for a second. Yeah. Sure. So basically, each of the sculptures that you're seeing um, are models of theoretical pavilions in a reimagining of the 19, most of the 1964 World's Fair. You know, elements of like the 39 and 64, but like we were really reliant heavy sort of on the 64 fair. For sure, yeah. So each of the models has like an architectural sort of reference been hacked in some way. Yeah. So for example, like this is the science and education pavilion, but you have like the swastika embedded in the roof. We start with the speculative piece and then everything else beyond there is something that's sort of not realized physically right now. But yeah. it's something that we're gonna experiment with with future shows. Like the next show is gonna explode out the American home pavilion a bit. So it has to be a, a sort of redesign of it because if even for example, I'm not even sure I might redesign the curtain mm. for the scale of which you will encounter it, mm. like to make it a little bit larger in terms of mm. graphics. Um, we get to keep the skirt. Ours forever. But the main difference is that um, 
when you walk in, it's going to be sort of the same Clinton Pavilion and this kind of same like 19, early mid-1960s institutional aesthetic. Yeah. But then when you sort of go to the back of the gallery, I want to take the American Home Pavilion and expand it into like a model home showroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the four night furniture. Yeah. It's very cool. Yeah. The carpet is so small for you. Yeah. So this is yeah. perfect for this yeah. Yeah. There's all of this other archival stuff like didn't make its way in. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we are looking at is I found these A Thousand Lane magazines, which was like the kind of like regionally specific magazine for Levittown that was like sort of like a DIY home improvement kind of thing and yeah. like advertisements for fabricators and yeah. like, you know, contractors to really go deeper into segregation in the suburbs and like the creation of those sort of like stratified yes. Societies. Yeah. I'm also so. from Long Island. I spent oh, so much time in Levittown. Oh. First boyfriend lived in Levittown. Wow. Um, my I'm dad from was. Oh, okay. So my yeah. dad was born in Bushwick in 1915. Yeah. In Levittown. I mean, I so read like that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. You read that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, no. And I mean, so it's like that, and then just kind of like the whole Robert Moses element here too. Yeah. And you know, like so that that sculpture is based on the um, One Mile chapter from, um, you know, the power broker. It's like Robert Moses is this figure and kind of like the Cold War within and without. And, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, New York is like a model home for I know. cities. It's so, <laughs> to think about this as like one man's twisted, like model proposition yeah, that actually exactly. happened. And you're like, but wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah, not, it's not fair that you weren't living forever because you didn't have to suffer through this like we all do. Yeah, so I feel like, yeah, should we jump in? Yeah. yeah so. Oh, hey, hey, how are you? Um, so on the far end of the table, we have our special guest, which is Lynn Melajewski, who you are the archives and collection manager at the Queens Museum. Um, and you started there relatively recently in 2020. You're in that <laughs> position. Uh, Lynn both cares for and manages objects that are related directly to the 1939 and 1964 World's Fairs, the museum's art collection, and also the museum's institutional history. So before joining that museum, though, she was an associate director at Calicoon Fine Arts. She's also worked in an archival capacity at Andrea Rosen Gallery, um, primary information and printed matter. So Malajewski is exp an experienced editor and has written for Baum and the Brooklyn Rail, among others, with an emphasis on artist books and archival projects. So thank you so much for being here and talking to us. <laughs> then we also have right next to me on the right is Johanna Herr, who is our solo artist of this exhibition, although I'll talk about her collaborator, Kara Marsh-Sheffler, in just a moment. <laughs> Johanna has an MFA in sculpture from Cranbrook Academy of Art and a BFA in fine art from Parsons. She's had many solo exhibitions, including here. She's also shown solo at Geary Contemporary, Untitled San Francisco, Brick, Elijah Wheat Showroom, and Envoy Enterprises. Also outside of New York, she's shown at Redger Gallery, which is in Mongolia, and Gallery Metropole in Estonia, and been featured in many group shows. I will not list all of them. <laughs> and she also is a Fulbright scholar in Mongolia and has attended residencies, again, all over the world, um, and also has an exciting upcoming residency, which will be in the Arctic Circle, the Arctic Circle residency. What? Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so you can tell us a little about that toward the end. I think we sure. all want to know. Need a bigger book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so she also currently teaches at Parsons School of Design, 
Pratt Institute and at New York University. Additionally, and very importantly, she is the co-founder of Daughters Rising, which is an anti-human trafficking, indigenous women's empowerment NGO, which is based in Mai Wang in Thailand. So she lives and works, again, between here in Brooklyn and Mai Wang. Thank you so much, and congratulations on the solo show. And as I just said, her collaborator is Kara Marsh Scheffler. This is our wonderful writer, who is a New York-based writer, translator, and editor. Her writing has appeared in many publications, including The Guardian and Vice, and her books and collaborations with our artist, Johanna Herr, are for sale at bookstores and galleries, including Printed Matter, Perotin, The Whole, Mast, and Karma. So Herr and Scheffler's collaborative work has been featured by Nada and Freeze. And their most recent book is on view here. <laughs> uh, it's a guide that is a revisitation of the World's Fair called the Official Guide, I Have Seen the Future. Scheffler's writing in it is described by the New York Times with this wonderful quote as enthusiastically caustic. So <laughs> I think you should probably put that on your tombstone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I almost changed my Instagram handle, but you know. <laughs> Yay. Um, I am Chris Racanello. Yeah. I'm the co-director <laughs> of Project, along with Jacob Rhodes, who is currently yeah. over here. Um, thank you, Jacob, for doing tech in the back while we're up here. <laughs> um, and we are going to, again, talk with each other a little bit, both about the exhibition and your work more broadly, and also your work at the Queen's Museum and how those things all intersect with each other. So just to get started, I think we can talk pretty broadly just about how both the project in the gallery and also the work that you've done at the Queen's Museum has focused a little bit more on the 1964 World's Fair. And I just wanted to know if there were any reasons um, why you focused a little more on the 64 fair, or for you, why you've been kind of maybe a little bit more focused on the 64 fair. Um, so if any of you want to start with that question, that would be great. Um, I have a definite answer to that yeah. one, but I would want to hear what you have to say too. I kind of know what you have to say, but, um, but basically, um, the thing was that in the 1939 World's Fair, they had um, you know this governing body that, of course, is in Paris, and um, you know it sanctioned the fair, and they had this like Bauhaus spectacular sort of um, you know perfect World's Fair that, of course, said peace through understanding. This is in 1939, so like we know how that one ended. But basically, Moses Robert Moses, the, the urban uh, planner dictator of New York at that period of time went to propose the World's Fair again in 1964 the governing body said no but he was going to do it he did not take no for an answer so he had to rely on a lot of corporate sponsorships and that public-private partnership, that hand-in-glove kind of corporate collusion with the government, really feels very contemporary. And one of the taglines on the book is that the future was always brought to you by ExxonMobil. And, um, <laughs> you know, that's really how that fair feels to, to me. And that was sort of why I was drawn to it. Also, um, my mom's sitting right there. And um, my dad, who this book is, the kind of looms large over this book, both went to the World's Fair. It was something that was very much kind of this whole, like, book and map of it is sort of part of my inheritance. So I think that I felt closer biographically to 64, but really there was an article in Bloomberg a few weeks ago about how like Google and Facebook should maybe have seats in the UN. And it's like, okay, like that, but that's the beginning of that to me. So that's why it speaks more to me, I think. 
Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think right before we started actually sitting down to have our panel discussion, mm. I was hearing you talk about Robert Moses being an almost ghostly father figure of the mm. exhibition. So maybe we should all go into talking about Robert Moses a little bit more in just a moment. But if either Johanna or Lynn, if you want to talk about why the 64 has kind of appealed to you or you've worked with objects from it or... So it's this, at least for the Queen's Museum, I mean, it's this funny thing that the 64 fair, obviously, you still have many a folk who attended the fair. So the memory and the nostalgia and the obsession looms mm. extremely large for people on literally a day-to-day -day basis. And it was told to me very immediately when I started at the Queen's Museum two years ago that just about 80% of our audience come in for the panorama, and the wow. panorama wow. leads up and drops you yeah. in our World's Fair visible storage, which has 39 and 64. Wow. So of course people really like absorb the 39 hand in hand, <laughs> but I mean, I can't even tell you like weekly, if not every other day, I have to clean off smudge marks <laughs> from people just like looking <laughs> and touching and being like, I remember that, or like, I have that, my dad, my mom, my grandpa. Wow. So yeah. there's there's this real like tangibility in people's memory with mm. this event. And what was fascinating to me though is that people tell me about the same ten pavilions mm -hmm. every single time. Mm. It's it's the Vatican, it's Futurama, it's IBM, it's uh, Bell Systems, you know, it's all the really like snazzy Sinclair Dino, like the mm -hmm. snazzy fun ones, and you can just tell how seductive and obsessive they were in making this. So I think yeah. like, I've been kind of so obsessed with it because I'm like very obsessed with everything else that's there that I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, halfway through the 64 World's Fair, like Thailand became Thailand. It was Siam and they had to literally cross out on a marble pavilion huh. facade, like, so, and they put a little Thailand so, and it's hilarious that I'm like that is obscene that you're seeing these yeah. like these full international moments occur in literally like a label that probably no one actually noticed and I only know that because we have a pamphlet that says Siam and then in the 65 it says Thailand and you're yeah. you're kind of like oh shit like that the world was happening even though they really tried to say in the World's Fair like Nothing's happening. The world is static. Yeah. We can control it. We can feel in control of it. And it's just could not be further from the case <laughs> for me as far as what was going on with civil rights and the world right. and international politics globalization. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty obsessed with yeah. kind of looking into <laughs> it, looking past what people remember or think they remember. Yes. Yes, as if it's very measurable and containable. Um, yeah. You know, I, it's interesting because... What you're saying is essentially that it's almost an architectural <laughs> reason for focusing on it, that you have been, because of the space and the way that people respond to the space, yeah. I think that's something that is so unique to the World's Fair, is the way that um, my grandma and my mom, both my grandma remembers the 39, and my mom remembers the um, 64, yeah. and both of them remember the experience of space like mm -hmm. very much and like color and also food as we were talking about before oh, yeah. we started yeah um you know and that like that is so much of what shaped um people's responses and the kind of um almost like free-for-all kind of fun mm -hmm. <laughs> atmosphere that was trying to be set up yeah. that was contributing to that belief in you know 
the world, the world being able to be containable like that. And I obviously didn't know anything about it, Siam being scratched out and it being Thailand, but that is a really interesting, very surreptitious story. Um, so, oh, one other thing I'll just say about yeah. uh, the aesthetics of the 1964 fair, which is also, because I second everything in terms of the project of what Kara has said, um, but everything that we're talking about in terms of people having a really intense nostalgic feeling for this era, as opposed to the 1939, which there's like less people who would be able to experience a sort of nostalgia for that aesthetic, to me that was really important in it because um, in all of my work I try to have this next, this sort of triangulation between something that is seductive in one sense and then has this really dark charged like political content on one um, you know part of the triangle and then something that is charming. And the charming is like the, the X factor and that's really hard, but if you get something that's nostalgic, you can get there a lot easier yeah. um, as a way of disarming people. And so even if you were, so if you were able to experience the 64 World's Fair, it's like it gets you immediately, right? Because you're having memories of it. But mm -hmm. as you know, we have talked about before in terms of the institutional aesthetic of design strategies and of these institutional spaces that even myself, like as someone who was like born in the late 80s, like the, design strategies that we're using for this exhibition were like my high school works. My high school was built in the 60s. So it's like you're still having able to have mm -hmm. intergenerational nostalgia yeah. as a way of disarming people to sort of become involved in it before they can intellectualize what the content is. Yeah, and I mean, you're doing that so much in all of these works, but especially in the wallpaper that's behind you, which you've even decided to match with what you're wearing in a weird way, <laughs> like design-wise. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the kind of the way that you've done this in the wallpaper is really interesting where you've just used texture as a way of including the kind of darker side of this highly nostalgic kind of totally. design choice. Um, so I think that plays out really, maybe do you want to talk, since I brought it up, do you want to talk a little bit about the wallpaper and what it is? Oh yeah. Sure. Um, so this is, I see this as part of an ongoing series. I wanted to do um, sort of delve into more of the history of segregation within U.S. housing policy, both in the suburbs and in more urban environments. And so this is the Stytown wallpaper and that is the Levittown wallpaper. And you have to get really up on it to see it, but it actually is embossed and so it has text on it. Um, and the one that is the Levittown wallpaper has the uh, racially restrictive covenants that are on the deeds of all Levittown property, which is a common thing with uh, developments of the time uh, where you know, technically housing segregation was outlawed in like 1928 with like Buchanan ruling, but then they would find all these surreptitious ways of getting around that to perpetuate segregation. One of which was um, to put these restrictive covenants on deeds that are extraordinarily difficult to get off of the deeds. So there's still deeds all over the US that have these on them. Um, that basically said only white people could live there. So I wanted this wallpaper to be really kind of like fun and like, you know, again, this sort of like nostalgic, um, pattern but then have this kind of underlying almost like a keloid scar of this like embossed texture coming through mm -hmm. and it has the text from one of the covenants and then this one is from Stytown so on the flip side in terms of like urban development that um, so Stytown um, was developed by MetLife curiously enough as like a developer and it was one of these examples uh, of the era of this like for pro or this sort of private public partnership to make these big housing complexes 
but they were always segregated. So like Stuytown was always meant to be for white people, and there's like you know these other developments that were supposed to be you know for other folks. Eventually, um, they Stuytown was sued um, by two African American GIs who were like, this is you know like nah, like how are we still doing this? And they ended up winning, like thankfully. But um, the defense of Stuytown and of, of MetLife was that because even though they got all this public money to make the the um, development, Michelana, yeah, exactly that um, it was because they're a private entity, the 14th Amendment didn't apply to them. So that's wow. what this text is. This is their defense, legally. Wow. That's also yeah. literally the same thing Moses did for the 64 World's Fair. Yeah. Mm. Because it was on technically private property because he rented it from the city because it wasn't an official World's Fair. They didn't have to go through the official paperwork. And that's how he was able to put up all these signs and claim that demonstrations were not available. Like, if you protested, if there were any signs, you were to get kicked out. It was very adamant. And a lot of people started doing, like, either fully dressed in black or fully dressed in white mm. protests where they would just be silent protests. No signs, weren't allowed to hand out leaflets, weren't allowed to hold a sign at all. Um, and of course, like the core protest is what everyone knows about on the opening day. But that was kind of like a single event that right. people saw that and were like, shit, we can't do that anymore. And he was like, that's correct. You cannot do that anymore because this right. is technically my land right now. It's wild. Like it's right a public now. park. That was always yeah. the vibe. And that whole, like, the 14th Amendment is a real through line in the book, too, because yeah. it is this whole corporations or people, citizens united ruling that, um, you know, gets you to the whole, you know, corporate collusion, sort of corporations on the same level as countries, but also getting the rights of individual citizens that supersede a lot of people of, you know, who disadvantaged means or of color in this right. country. And um, in our, we have our Futurama Rama section here, which is a riff on Futurama, obviously, but it's welcome back to 1939. And one of the things that we have in there is an animatronic Abe Lincoln speaking the Citizens United ruling, basically, because it's just the ultimate perversion of the Emancipation Proclamation, which is 13th and then 14th and 15th. So, yeah. 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 Those yeah. amendments just kind of like came home to roost in a horrible way. Yeah. It really, it really is a strong through line. And I mean, throughout this whole exhibition um, that I have seen, the future exhibition, you know, it's about utopia, but it's also very much about um, othering and race and dystopia and yes. the, the sort of dream of utopia, but then the way that that's still so extraordinary exclusionary. So you kind of talked about that in the wallpaper. Mm -hmm. Can you just maybe point out like one other instance where you're kind of trying to elicit exactly um, how the World's Fair was marginalizing people who literally lived around the area where the World's Fair was. I mean, I would say like the transportation pavilion would maybe be the one that I would speak to. I don't know if you think of a different one, but um, where it's this idea of infrastructure for these things that are going to be public things, but then end up negatively impacting the most kind of marginalized communities. Um, so like having a expressway through East Tremont. So this is like right. the Cross Bronx Expressway yeah. through East Tremont, Brownstone. Maybe you could speak more to this. I don't know, Lynn. Like hmm. in terms of like the construction of, of stuff. I mean, I, we were sort of thinking about it more in like that era as well. Yes. So we sort of expanded. Yes. The, well, that yes, everything that's happening. That that sculpture, yeah. and I was saying this before, is based on um, this chapter one mile and Robert Caro's The Power Broker, which was a real touchstone text for the book, you can't really talk about Robert Moses without talking about Robert Caro. Um, so um, so basically that book is this magisterial kind of like, I mean, it just doesn't have a peer as a 
piece of biography and um, my fa- like just in terms of the way that it takes prose and facts and brings them to- together, there's this one line where he talks about how all of the bridges that Robert Moses built in New York had um, cable that was enough noose to, with enough, enough mileage of cable to drop a noose around the world, basically, is the quote. And it's just like, you know, so it's all this prose about that. And basically, East Newmont in the Bronx at the time was not a disadvantaged community. It was actually a really nice middle class community where people could, you know, have, um, a, you know, a, a four person home that was pretty big with like, a giant living room. Um, you have a big Seder, big Thanksgiving in. And um, basically, Robert Moses, through patronage, he could have taken another route, but he took the route to go right through the middle of this neighborhood and 14,000 families lost their homes there. But the legacy of that was that it completely screwed up the map of the Bronx and combined with white flight and everything else that sort of happened. You see that utopia here is this wish for the convenience of white suburbanites, essentially. So it's this top-down hope of governance where, you know, you sweep certain people away into that sculpture, which is the Jacob Rees houses, which is this, like, you know, bastardized Le Corbusier sort of um, hope of the future for, you know, racist Robert Moses to put everybody in ghettos. And then other people just get shunted under highways that advantage those who have access to car cultures and have access to the money that, uh, you know, Robert Moses was playing to, basically. And it was the sort of future that he wanted. And um, so that was kind of our take on Utopia, is that it's violence and that it's a top-down willing on, you know, what the future is supposed to look like and who gets to decide that. So, yeah. And it's also, like, the power the power of objectivity. Like, that someone could just Mm -hmm. say, like, you know what, I'm just going to make it like this because that's the quickest way and, like, We'll figure it out, but it's and it also brings up, of course, the Jane Jacobs consideration of yeah. like densification being so vital to a healthy city and being such a part of what makes it move and what makes it tick and what allows people to interact and support each other and have mutual aid. And then you cut it up like that sculpture, and all of a sudden, no one can do anything in a way yeah. because you have to start over altogether. And there's yeah. also literally no way to literally bridge the gap that has been created um, for this rich white understanding of the world that Moses continued to perpetuate through literally our architecture and infrastructure. So, yeah. And one of the things that you said to me about why you wanted to do architectural models when yeah. we started out with this whole mm-hmm. thing is that like it's like this scale of playing God that like you look yeah. at Robert Moses standing behind these models and it's just somebody. He's always photographed that way. Right. He's always yeah. photographed in a suit behind mo- models, right? Mm-hmm. As this sort of making things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's sort of indicative of all of that kind yep. of Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, Mr. Yale guy. Yeah, yeah. doing that. Yeah, well, he never South took the subway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he never drove. He never yeah. had a driver's never license. Yeah, it's like that's the best. It was like a backseat driver thing in the yeah. book from him. Yeah, like it's just wild. Never yeah. learned how to drive. Yeah. And building bridges and literally marginalizing people yeah. and cutting up space. And I liked how you said that, Lynn, about how you know it is this abstraction. The model is just done, or at least in the way that Robert Moses is conceiving of it, was done without doing any kind of groundwork. There's no going out and talking to people about what would make any of this a better, more livable situation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, but people at the time really knew and protested against, as you were saying, you brought up the core protests at the World's Fair 
And actually, I feel like that's a good way to bring in, we're inside of this exhibition right now, um, but you worked on an exhibition on the World's Fair, the Ambitious Slogans and Colorful Promises Great. exhibition. Can you, can you tell us about that? Because also I remember I, I read that you had put in also some things from the core protests. So I thought maybe you could kind of bring that in and talk a little bit about that exhibition. Yeah, so it took a few different kind of priorities. We have kind of at the Queen's Museum a secret art collection that no one really knows about. So I wanted to try and figure out how we could interrogate the World's Fair, how we could interrogate this like this majestic version of Robert Moses that a lot of people continue to grasp and like very tightly hold on to. And I wanted to do that by looking at the artists in the collection that were creating work at the same time. So fundamentally I took the future, which is like again so apropos like, <laughs> apps right now. Um, but took this idea of the future that the World's Fair put out there and tried to see what people were actually responding to that Moses and the corporations and also even the countries and the cities that were developing and trying to really put themselves literally on a map with an American public that they knew would spend money, would travel there, would need to feel safe and wanted to be introduced to the culture. The culture, which like at the World's Fair, that's a whole other issue. Like we're talking about what the stereotypes began, what stereotypes actually began at that fair. So horrendous. So to actually take these ideas of the American dream and say like, what did someone in 1970 think the American dream was? What did someone um, yeah. in 1972 who was thinking about you know surveillance consider, and how did they actually visualize that? So the fair took these different elements, um, archival elements from the fair. So there were funny things um, like the sign, for example, that Moses put up about no demonstrations alongside the core protest photos. Um, we had some really funny kind of like also technological, because you can't talk about the fair without talking about technology, of course. So we had um, some brochures that were thinking about how literally the World's Fair was trying to like make nuclear energy cool and convince people that hydrogen bombs weren't scary anymore by literally having a hydrogen reactor in a pavilion that would be demonstrated every 10 minutes, which is, again, bonkers. <laughs> that people are like in a surgery, like viewing den, watching nuclear fission happen. And you're just like, this could literally explode the entire like City. borough. Like, this is insane. Um, so looking at that and also just like trying to figure out as well how we start to bring other voices into this interpretation of the fair. So like I, I kind of started with a group of objects, but very intentionally left the room kind of open mm -hmm. and invited different people um, that I work with at the Queens Museum. So I had like two of our front of house um, colleagues who were, were incredible, you know, like they came up to the archive and I was like, what do you think envisions a version of the future? What do you mm -hmm. think is like kind of fucked up that we should look at in comparison to these other things that were official documentation or official propaganda as far as I'm concerned. So mm -hmm. we really kind of tried to find a way to make that disjuncture between what people thought about the future and what people were actually experiencing about the present looking toward the future and see how that kind of felt in the space. So yeah, it was, it was really fun. I mean, I'm learning so much about this. Like I totally came into this fully green and just like obviously have so much to continually learn about this but the objects really tell a story it's like it's no joke <laughs> yeah to get mm -hmm. out of it yeah and actually i wanted to ask you you have some original guidebooks don't yeah. you at the in the actual archive there yes and so i wanted to ask you a little bit if you could tell us about the guidebook because the guidebook is such a 
structuring force in this exhibition, um, which is the collaboration between Kara and Johanna. Um, but could you tell us a little bit about? No, it's. <laughs> I don't even God. know that I could ask you to do that. <laughs> I would have asked you to do that. I have them on my coffee yeah, table. Yeah, I have them too. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't think about it. But yeah. could you just maybe tell us a little bit about what the guidebook is? Yeah. So the guidebook, they made two versions, one for each year, because the pavilions did change. Some people went bankrupt. Some people couldn't participate anymore, etc. So the guidebook really takes you through literally each section of the fair and then goes through each pavilion and describes what is included. So many of them had films, many of them had gardens, many of them had like displays of ancient artifacts and very unique things that people like definitely had never seen a, you know, scroll from the Dead Sea or literally the only time the Pieta ever left Vatican City. Like that was all described for you in this beautiful little book. Um, and also just the advertisements are like some of so my much favorite. Booze. So much booze. So much booze. booze. So many cigarettes. <laughs> like I can't even tell you how many ashtrays we have. It's so, again, fascinating to just be like, yes, everyone got an ashtray. Everyone got a map from like the Sakoni Mobile or from like the TBTA, Trevor Bridge and Tunnel Authority. Like all of these things. I mean, we have so many copies and duplicates like ad nauseum, but... I mean, I think that's another, we can get to that later, but as far as like how I envision kind of this can actually live because the material is mm -hmm. there and they're like, it's, it's so tangible and it's even more powerful to be able to like look at this with the original thing and be like, yeah, look at like that actually corresponds to that hall of education and look how they pitched it and look how they like framed it. And also the language is, is so beautiful. It's so funny to me. <laughs> like you really just get that sixties kind of like, jazz of, of phrasing and yeah it's great they're beautiful they're beautiful books <laughs> yeah yeah and so I mean obviously as I was saying they are such an important part of this exhibition but just yeah. generally were an important part of of archiving and also like producing the fair outside of the fair like people kept these guidebooks mm. people collected like still have them um so could you could you both maybe talk a little bit about the decision to focus on the guidebook and use it as this kind of place where, because if you look at this exhibition along with the guidebook, it really does lead you through. And there's even a map at the beginning of this guidebook, you know, where we can see each one of these pavilions, uh, which we haven't talked too much about yet. I'm gonna ask a little bit more about, but could you just talk a little bit about choosing to do that? And then also could you talk about the, the imagery in it and the mm. quotes in it and kind of the decisions about the way that materials are both new, collaged, and original in mm -hmm. it too. I think that's really important. Uh, yeah, so I mean, there, there are like basically, I think, a few things to go into first. First of all, our collaboration is sort of based on subverting mid-century propaganda pieces. So their first book was sort of like a riff on a Sears catalog about um, a body of work that was, um, you know, rugs that um, Joanna had done. The next book was um, about the Chiquita banana brand and United Fruit and its collusion with the CIA. So it was done in the format of a recipe book. So doing a guide was sort of a natural next step. And mm -hmm. in terms of... Uh, but because of the, the process was a little bit different oh, than the yeah, first one. Oh, yeah, but yeah. So, and then you can jump back in. Yeah. Um, where, like, I had this original, the, the Sears catalog one, I had this body of work and had asked Kara to participate and, like, to do a catalog essay. And then through sort of we were riffing off of 
the history of the Sears, Sears catalog being related to Afghan war rugs, Kara was like, oh my god, what if we did a night like a wacky 1970s catalog? <laughs> so it was like the body of yeah. work had existed, and then through the collaborative conversation, it was like, oh, this is how this mm-hmm. archival mm-hmm. material could be subverted, right? Then with the Banana Republican um, recipe book, I was doing this whole body of work, (laughs) really dark though, so dark, Um, about the history of U.S. corporate military malfeasance (laughs) in Central America through the banana trade, Mm. and then through that research, I had found all these archival recipe books, and then kind of came to Karen and was Mm. like, I don't know. (laughs) Get out your banana phone, yeah. And then I was like, you know what, we should just do another book. Like, should we yeah. do a recipe book? And you were like, I'm fucking, I'm there. Yeah. And then this one, it was like, okay, this has already been such a good collaboration. What would be the, the subverted publication version of it? So I feel like then it was like, yeah. I found the guidebooks. I was like, oh, done. But I think the two yeah. things that like also kind of come into this are like something I have in common with you and something I have in common with you, which is um, artist books and printed matter. We've all the printed matter in our past, but this whole idea of the artist books and of like in collage, yes. you keep coming back to in like Weimar, you know, like that whole sort of thing is always in the background. And then, you know, um, you're a medievalist. I did medieval studies. And I think that like there's this whole notion of like imagined cities that exists and these things that like I can write about something that doesn't actually exist, but it exists in the book. So it's real. And like that was a very powerful part of this for, for me and it because basically these sculptures that are slowly rotating, you know, like Simpsons food always tastes better when it's rotating kind of thing. I really wanted to do the after party at the Marriott Marquis, by the way, just saying. That was my speculative after party, but, you know, someday. But basically, the um, thing about these sculptures is that each one of them represents an area in the fair and, um, you know, is sort of the centerpiece of each area there. And then the wall text is the first paragraph in each chapter of the book here, as it were. And then we have these pavilions that are imagined. They don't exist, but they're real because they exist in the book. So I think for me, that kind of structure of the actual thing that Joanna was building that was going to be up like flocked, wacky, rotating physical object that's here in this show, and we'll move on to other shows, that 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 was one part of it, but then the idea that like I could just make up a Cecil B. DeMille movie that like doesn't exist, like <laughs> just kind of like do my thing there, and that was really special. And the way um, to answer the other part of your question that we got into that is essentially starting with the Sears catalog. Um, we got very into um, using uh, texts that were basically sourced from, you know, from from other experts because, you know, when we were writing about things like the carceral system in America, it's like, do I have to write something on this or can I can't just quote, you know, Angela Davis? You know, it's like that sort of thing. It's like we quote Angela yes. Davis is the answer to that. Yes. So, you know, and um, so basically the way that this operates is I wrote a zippy, I hope I did that, like, wacky, corporatized, futurist, like 60s language, some justice kind of diddly and then it goes into a piece of text from say you know John Hersey's Hiroshima or a book on napalm or you know something else that has to do with or the the book here and then I'll this will segue into you know your graphic design part of it we also have a lot of appropriated ads where we'll do something like um have in the American home section a Tupperware ad with um, Betty Friedan's um, feminine mystique, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of inverted, uh, you know, subverted, I'd say, as, as the uh, ad copy in there, and then that, yeah, goes to you. What are you? Oh, yeah. I think Robert Moses is the chef. Oh, that's, oh, yeah. that's my favorite, yeah, that's Worded, one of my favorite. Like, omelet, yeah. 
that's, yeah. Yeah. Is that a real? Yeah. Is that stamped with the? Is that real? No, that's yeah. not real. Yeah, no, oh, it's okay. Okay. But there was an omelet ad, and Robert <laughs> Moses did say that you know he raises his stein to the developer who can like you know like make developments without breaking some like make you know whatever breaking neighborhoods and breaking eggs and that whole sort of thing. So we put in the the Robert Moses yeah. quote there, and then she um, photoshopped Robert Moses's face it's onto just the chef. For you, I, it really so was. Good. Hey, and for Lynn, <laughs> like, like you know, yeah, yeah. That's, honestly, yeah. that's the most like photoshopped aspect of it because what was really interesting. What I really wanted to do is like keep the images images mostly the same yeah. and yeah. just mime the text, like the typographic kind mm. of stuff, and swap stuff out um, because I didn't want. It's like you can, with Photoshop, I mean, I can make anything happen, mm -hmm. right? Like, Robert mm -hmm. Moses being a chef is like lowest common denominator, yeah. right? Like, you can put him on Mars. Yeah. But I didn't want it to go there, because I feel like then it's, like, giving me too much license to be able to sort of make my own intervention, where I just wanted the images to do the thing that they did in the era and have the text do something else. Like, you know, you get seduced by this sort of, like, wacky, nostalgic sort of imagery, and then it's like, wait a minute, what is this text? So there's actually, like, that's probably as... as, as uh, funny as it goes in terms of my intervention on the imagery. Yeah. yeah, but I think that I really think that was such an excellent choice because of how close it really pulls out. I mean, when we interviewed you and Kara with Jacob, Jacob was t talking about how the kind of closeness of sarcasm, how it really mm. points out the reality of how ridiculous even those things were at the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like, mm -hmm. people did respond and say, like, this ad is. But to see it today, now, it really, some of those, like, seem so sexist or so racist. Yeah. <laughs> or even just the subtle, like, overly consumerist, capitalist, like, overtones yeah. of the entire fair, right? Like, that that's what we capitalism in democracy. Yeah. Right. Like, What's the really clarity of, like, consumerism? That they're just like, yeah. it's so sexy to buy right. stuff. And you're like, what? Yeah. Like, that's all you had to do was <laughs> do make it that... Yeah, so oh, this, yeah, this, this ad, and uh, Mom, you remember this ad, right? Yeah. yeah. So it says, tomorrow's less Doyle. So we have a, you know, a woman kind of where it like, looks like Twiggy. She has, like, this, like, big, like, you know, like, dot sort of, like, from the future, like, gold orb in the middle of her forehead, third eye thing. And it says, women of the future will make the moon a cleaner place to live. Um, <laughs> presenting tomorrow's less Doyle, nothing, nothing cleans like it. And it's just, this is the real copy, yeah. you know? And yeah. it's just it's like we can imagine people on the moon but we can't imagine gender equality right <laughs> right, right. Literally. yes literally. literally yeah you know it's like oh yeah like yeah. that's yeah you'll still make 78 cents to the dollar yeah. there the yeah. intervention that you make on that image at all is to put a little gold star that says yes. this is real yeah. 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 which is an important intervention in the book actually because mm. I, I when I started reading that they became touchstones for me to go like you know, I know this is a constructed book by both of you, mm. um, and that there's a lot of text in there that isn't original or wouldn't have been anywhere near the original guidebook, and yet looking at the images and seeing like this was really in there is their important kind of key stopping points throughout as you're reading and as you're looking at everything. Um, and I think that that is just so significant for everyone. Um, if you haven't had a chance to look at the book later, um, you should check it out. So, um, you know, you've talked a little bit about the advertisements, um, but then also I keep thinking about, you know, all of you, I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit, but I think that's fine. Um, all of you are really invested in not just um, the archive and history, but also kind of 
making an intervention in the archive and also reviving the archive and opening the archive and making it more accessible mm -hmm. um, in very different ways, right? You're an archivist, you're a writer, and you're an artist. Um, and I wanted to ask all of you maybe, since we're talking about the guidebook and it does lend itself so much to talking about archival objects, mm -hmm. um, we've just talked about the fact that you have guidebooks in the Queens Museum, but then also that you have some at home, which I didn't know either, um, which must have been great to work from, right, in order to make this book. Mm -hmm. Even. Um, so yeah. can, you, can you talk so a little bit just about um, making an intervention in the archive and why you see that is so important for your work? Um, and maybe we can just talk about how your approaches are different because you do different jobs, but also because, you know, how that makes it different and how that brings it to a different kind of public too, right? Mm. Um, you're nodding. Maybe you can start with. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I was thinking about what you said when I first got here, Joanna, about the, and also the intro essay of this book, which is excellent, highly recommend, that gives you the 39, it really gives you the full, I don't know, the, the tangent that Robert Moses began with the 39 fair and how like the 39 fair had a very different vibe and a very different push and was in a very different time thinking about global citizenry and mm -hmm. collectivity and mm -hmm. what freedom means. Like these are big questions that people coming out of the Great Recession and going into World War II were confronted with so immediately. And then you see the 64 fair and it's this just like pure pop, pure candy, pure cuteness that in my brain like seduced a lot of people in a very subversive and very misleading and very misguided way. Because every time I talk to someone and they tell me about the same 10 pavilions, I'm like, okay, but what three other pavilions are embedded in your brain that you don't even think about? Like, is it the African drumming pavilion? Because the entire continent of Africa had one pavilion. Wow. Is it um, the Clairol pavilion, which was only for women, and you could get a guidebook there that gave you free hair and makeup consultations, but it was only for white women? There literally was not even like an olive skin option. It was like, mm. you are pale or cream or tan maybe and that was literally it mm -hmm. so like what other stereotypes what other microaggressions what other like real and and then you get to the corporate and economic side and you think about the hall of free enterprise which literally like gave you a guidebook for capitalism and made it beautiful in this like tree demonstration diorama that this cute you know uh, like guide was literally pointing out with like a pointer from middle school and just being like look an apple is you know, globalization, we should eat it and share it. You know, it's just the way that they, the way that everything was pitched so easily. But now, obviously, we know this is the foundation of all the heinous conflict, all like the true kind of like cat's cradle that we're in right now in, in so many different elements of existence. I think I'm trying to figure that out. Like what actually can we look to and say like these are the people who are now like literally running the world and as we've seen even just from the last week like doing horrible things yeah. and like supporting horrible versions of whatever america or you know consumer is and mm -hmm. how do we unravel that without looking at this considering it was such a touchstone for an entire generation um so trying to figure out also how to bring artists into that is really like where i'm at right now trying to make potentially like exactly i i mean my dream this is like the 10-year plan to like think about how we can make a research collection for artists to actually like uh, use the things like i have a 
20 booklets of extra tickets. Like if you want to scan that and put it in a collage, if you want to use it in a collage, these are tangible objects that have meaning and weight and a feeling to them that, you know, is amazing to kind of like riff on and have like a satirical engagement with. Like I love this so much as a project, but also to actually look at the thing and really interrogate that mm -hmm. um, and have artists who are dealing with a lot of these issues of the issues of urban housing, segregation, racism, classism in the city. There's a real way in which this history allows maybe an artist to expand their own practice or to look at it right. in a different way and definitely want to invite that in every way, shape, and form. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really, I think both everything that you're saying now, but also the exhibition itself, ambitious slogans, that you're really trying to present the archive as not dead and also still affecting people. Um, I mean, and I think that that's such an important kind of intervention to want to make in the archive because the perception of archives generally is like, these are, you know, like archeological objects that no longer are like relevant in our lives. They're part of history. They're being relegated kind of to the side of everyday life now. So I feel like that's kind of the intervention that you want to make. And I think that both of you want to make as well, but yeah. you're just approaching that very, very differently. I think we could all go in on like a reverse, you know, Venice Biennale of like yeah. how Robert Moses yeah. and the World's Fair impacted everything in the five rows. Yeah, no, I feel like, yeah, no, but, um, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, the two of us have been talking about like where this goes next, and it's kind of like when you talk about the 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 the, the content that's even in these sculptures, it's like the you know unilateral unisphere you know speaks to these international issues. The the science and education pavilion with the, the NASA building the swastika and Operation Paperclip, like and you know Doctor Strangelove, which is called how I you know learned to stop worrying and love the bomb, like the hydrogen bomb mm -hmm. exhibit. That's more about international affairs but then you know a lot of it is is local and a lot of it is like why does Brownsville look like it does and why does Lincoln Center exist where it does and who got moved for that so I think that you know even as we think of where this project goes next it's sort of all those different questions and it's all about the many ways in which this legacy lives on and it's like how do you even like tackle all of that you know and um, and I mean, in terms of why the archive is alive to me, um, you know, I'm going to give you like the least intellectual answer here, um, which is like my family. Um, you know, this is, uh, it's a biography of circumstance for me. It's definitely, this book is my inheritance. Um, this book is why I have a family that, um, you know, completely benefited from this infrastructure, but is also dead because of this infrastructure. And um, that sort of naughty Ouroboros is, is everything there for yeah. me. And um, it's making sense of that on a highly personal level that, you know, kind of attracted me to this project in the first place. And, um, you know, then I think large in, in a larger capacity out to, uh, you know, what the world looks like today and why it does look that way and why I was told to think about it in a certain way. And one of the other things that we didn't talk about, but um, we can't be in this room without our, like retinas assaulted by this color called mint parfait um and mint parfait it's a bear color um but basically when we put this thing up on the wall and um like i have no physical competence with really anything except like some fine motor skills but um but we were putting this thing up on the wall and um we all just began talking about crappy things that happened to us in like middle school and high school really? as like yeah. like you know subconsciously and um angelica um who's the amazing intern here began talking about she's like it's giving institutional trauma <laughs> Like, oh my god it is giving institutional trauma you know and um we realized that we had set about making this to look like 
an expo at the World's Fair mm. and, you know, kind of bringing down everything from the ceiling, you know, and you'd walk in and you'd feel like you were in one of these little, like, cubed off areas. And instead, it ended up looking like one of our middle schools, you know, and we realized that right. that vision of the World's Fair is what shaped us in so many ways, mm. um, you know, because it was how we, the, the, it made the vessels that we were taught through. And another thing that I realized as I was researching this was that I thought, I've never been to the World's Fair, I need to talk to my mom, I need to talk to, like, my dad's best friend, who I did an interview with kind of ends the book actually and all these other things um I did to research it and I thought oh wait like I went to Epcot Center and I went to Epcot Center the year I was born the year it opened you know um which is really aging myself but um but basically that is um something that was so much a part of my childhood in the same sort of uh zippy, corporately co-opted way of thinking about the future. And, um, you know, it's it's something that we were all raised with and something that, like, we really need to get away from. And I think that there's, uh, you know, like, the need to teach. So that's why I think the archive matters. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, so, ultimately, I'm interested in archives because archives are always about power. And, you know, what is decided that should be archived, what is worth you know, holding on to is a decision based on power. But then also, like, particularly these kind of, like, advertisements or things of an era, uh, you know, when we think about an image that was used for a cigarette ad or something like that, this is not one person's decision. This is, like, a corporate, like, the company that's selling the cigarettes, this is, like, the advertising, you know, Edward Bernays-infused <laughs> strategy. This is, like, the photographer, the stylist. But, you know, there's so many people who have to collectively make this image happen and that it impacts us in this way, you know? So it's also like a, a history of like, how do we have these construction of like the underbelly of our value systems? You know, why did no one say like, why does the whole continent of Africa only have one? Why is everyone like, what the fuck? The fact that they're not what the fuck is like part of that power structure, yeah, you know? for sure. Um, and so ultimately I feel like that is really interesting to me. Um, and I also, I mean, I teach this stuff at like Parsons and NYU as well in terms of like, um, media studies and like being critical mm -hmm. of that stuff. Yes. And so I feel like to me it's sort of something I think about constantly and I think about in a contemporary way as well in terms of all of the media we are absorbing all around us. Um, but it's really, you know, when we have a little bit of distance from it, we can look back and be like, oh my God, these are so ridiculous. Or these are so, ob the power structure is so obvious when you look at sort of dip, like older imagery and then it, it's harder to see, mm -hmm. it's harder to see that so much when you're closer to it. So. Yeah, I mean, you're reminding me of, um, I don't teach media studies, but when I've taught, like, for example, introductory art history classes, mm. whether that's medieval or general survey or whatever, like, we always end up, one of the biggest things I impress on people is, in the very first class, I always say, go out and look in the subway and walk down the street and look at advertisements, and we're going to talk about propaganda and the way that politics, like, permeates all visual culture, or whatever. Mm. Like, if anybody leaves the class, that's what I want them to leave with, totally. is this idea that images are not neutral, right. and the experience of those pavilions was not neutral, even if it was enjoyable and fun and trying to make you forget that it's not neutral, which I think it very effectively did, as, you, yeah. as we've all talked about, but Lynn, you've really also been emphasizing that, that the response people have often to, like, people more remember the 64 and 65 World's Fair, so the responses that we're seeing when I've talked to people about it here, and it seems like when we've, is just how fun and the color and, like, the way that all of the questioning of why there's only one pavilion for Africa um, got 
completely redirected into other things. I think that and this does come back to Epcot Center though. It's like <laughs> but it's Disney, yeah. right? So it's like that it defangs yeah. all of this. So it's like it's corporations. It's like ExxonMobil was at Epcot Center, GE, GM, you know, all these yeah. things like Horizons, you know. That is all corporate propaganda. Walt Disney to but do because it's Walt Disney, right? And Walt Disney also employed Werner von Braun, who was the Nazi scientist who came up with um, the rocket that, you know, leveled parts of London and um, ran torture camps at Dachau. And, you know, and he was just this, you know, mascot for progress. And um, and the, the Saturn V rocket, that is a huge part of this as well, is like Arthur Rudolph, who um, tortured people, like, personally as well. And, I mean, so it's like when you defang these things and you make them part, like, adjacent to children's cartoons and you bring in the corporations to bring in that money, it's just like, it seems like something that makes you safe. And I think that that is really what the whole military-industrial complex boiled down to and how we think of defense spending today. It's something that makes you safe. It's our entitlement. It mm -hmm. keeps everything in this, you know, American sphere and we're in control and it's okay and shut up. Yeah. Well, and I also think too, like how easy it was to overlook all of these facts also because people were also experiencing a multitude of things that they literally had never seen before, like had never heard, smelled, listened to, like the amount of film, the amount of photo in this fair is exemplary. Like there was a film that won an Academy Award for best documentary, like To the Fair won an Academy Award in 1964. That is wild. Like all of the Walt Disney stuff, but that was the first time he had ever done the animatronics. Like yeah, right. literally yeah. the first, and I think there's wow. also this wild thing of like, we're so used to it, and I, I think this is the moment when it's so necessary. Like, I don't, I'm not throwing shade at anyone who attended and has the best memories of it. I'm sure it was amazing. I wish I was able to go and like put myself in a time machine, but like with my current existence and like see it, but there's, there's a way in which like this is the unpacking that is, that is due that I think yes. also Moses was trying to shield people from, trying to just be like, don't worry about it. It's 1958, actually. It's not even... You don't even have to worry about what's going on out there. It's like not a big deal. Just like stay in here, and yeah. and everyone honestly fell for it, and like got really excited. Like I don't know. I mean, even my father, who like I love to death, like grew up on Long Island, like <laughs> also remembers like when this was a moment. And even up until like four years ago, he was still like, yeah, capitalism. Like anyone can do it. And I was like, Dad, not true. Like literally not true. And he's like, no, but it is true. I'm like it is not. So like those conversations where it's even just like yeah. the generational conversations are happening right now because they have to because the world is crumbling around us, right? Like, and I think that's what's really interesting, especially when you think of the urban planning, when you think of climate change and nature, like the fact that they thought it was cool to be able to like chop down a mile of the rainforest oh, lasers. Lasers. with lasers yeah. in the jungle. Yeah. Lasers yeah. on the highway. And it's just like... What? What? Like, who thought? What scientists actually thought this through, and they didn't? So yeah, like, no. I think that's also the comedy of it's it. It's interesting though, because it's part of it's the time period where America, for a long time, presented itself as proud of being a polluter because it was about yeah. industry mm -hmm. and all of those. And this is right at the time where that shifts, yep. and America is no longer proud of being a polluter. But right at that point, and I think Robert Moses is really holding on to these kind of older ideas about industry and revolution and you should be proud that London has smog and whatever. Yeah. You know, like all of these kind of, those kind of ideas about what progress is. Yeah. Um, and I really also, the comment about your father 
re-brings up that question about, um, you know, just like the insidious, what pavilion don't you remember that has mm -hmm. lived with you? And I think capitalism is the pavilion that lives with everyone who went to the World's Fair. Um, but I guess that also brings in this question, we can't have this panel without talking about utopia. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and also just the fact that utopia is such a political, um, inherently political idea because it's talking about the idea of an ideal society. Um, and we talked a little bit before you even got here, like just about the idea of utopia. So I wondered, maybe you could talk about for both this exhibition and the exhibition you've worked on and as someone who's constantly working with materials from the World's Fair, could you just talk a little bit about your ideas about utopia? Also because we've talked about how, you know, there's a lot of um, critique of things here, but there's also kind of a positive side too to this idea of the dream or the utopia or the dream of a better life, right? That we, that I feel like is kind of missing right now for me in society, yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. no, I mean, one of the things before like we totally crap on the idea of utopia that I would <laughs> like to say here is that you do come at this from a place of love, like this, like yeah. the very, like at least like I do, you know, and I think that that's the thing is that like if you just come at any subject matter and you just like scream at people about like why it's screwed up. It's like, there isn't gonna be that like hook to it. And I'd like to think that the, uh, you know, special sauce here as it were is that there is this, um, I think that for me, it's almost like a nostalgia for nostalgia, really. Like, you know, I like, it's like whether you're on the left or you're on the right right now, you think everything is going to hell. And um, I am millennial, so I came of age between the fall of the Berlin Wall and 9-11, and I grew up in a really optimistic time. And um, we are not in an optimistic time right now. And I think that part of what was special looking at this was revisiting that optimism. And that is where you draw that line from mm -hmm. going back to Epcot Center, to the world's fair to Epcot, and kind of this idea of that there is a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. And, you know, the copy on the back of the book begins with yesterday, there was a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. You know, because that's, it's, it's gone. Uh, that, that idea is, is gone right now. And I do think that it is something that we need to get back to. What utopia is, is not that utopia, as I said, like I think is, you know, a top down hope um, for what that should be. And I think that it's kind of inherently violent, but I think that that sort of note of optimism and a love of optimism um, and a yearning for it and, 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 you know, and thinking, you know, like the inherent optimism of teaching and um, of going back to archives and, mm -hmm. you know, caring about our past so that we can have a better future and reevaluating what was left out, you know, and, and why that matters and teaching about why that matters and who gets hurt and caring about people getting hurt. I think that's really important. Um, but, you know, that's not necessarily utopia. That's optimism. <laughs> so, yeah. It's a good distinction. I'm yeah. glad that you drew that distinction for us <laughs> yes. between utopia and optimism. Yeah. Because I think that's maybe, that's a good way of phrasing something that has been loosely floating around in my brain from reading this book and yeah. thinking about there is kind of this this desire for that, mm -hmm. but there certainly isn't the desire for the kind of utopia that was being constructed by mm -hmm. either of the world's fairs. Yeah. Um, so mm -hmm. do either of you, do you have I mean, thoughts, Lynn or Joanna? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that when I think about this, like, I think of utopia inherently as, like, um, crafting something that people can, like, lose themselves in. The idea of the, a sort of, like, a shared collective fantasy that is maybe optimistic or whatever. But either way, it's, to me, it always goes back to, like, design language. And also, like, in terms of, the like, why people loved the 1964 World's mm -hmm. Fair, it's really fucking good design. 
Yeah. You know, you can't deny it. And it's literally having like the I, IBM pavilion was like the Eameses, you know, it's like having these like really good designers who are coming out of, and again, like sort of like Edward Bernays, kind of like the, the beginning of doing, um, what do you call it? The studies. Focus groups. Focus oh, groups. Okay. okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's some food in the focus stuff. group, but we'll anyway, forgive you. Yes. Yes, I do. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. But um so thinking about like if you know, when you have something that is like it's so well designed that people don't don't see it as design, they just intuitively experience it in the way that you want them to experience it, that's when you know something's working. Yeah. And so I feel like the fair was able to do that through the spectacle, mm. through the way that it's just like, oh, yes, you know? Um, and I think that, like, all utopic visions have that same sort of X factor of, like, getting people to be like, I'm on board, and I'm not going to intellectualize this, I'm not going to be critical about it, I'm just going to take it in and, like, mm. be with you. Yeah. And also, I, I wanted to mm, ask you, I, I wanted to ask you about both, if you could respond, because I think that is a really good point, and I feel like it kind of dovetails with things that you're thinking about but I also um, I know that you've talked a little bit too about how religion was a surprising thing to find a lot of in the archive at the Queen's Museum um, so maybe you can respond and talk about utopia but I also wanted to ask you about just all of the kind of documents and religion and religion's role in the idea of utopia too. Yeah I mean Utopia to me from the fair's perspective in a way is almost thinking of like self-sufficiency also and also like that immediacy of communication right like you had rubber tire and it was literally a tire you had like equitable life insurance and it was literally a counter of the population so that you knew what and that was their whole thing so it was very much like what you see is what you get and no surprises just kidding every surprise but it's like so I do agree with that kind of shift in it almost seems seeming so transparent, but in its transparency being really twisted in a very odd way. Um, and the religion pavilions, I think really speak to that. Um, for me, the one that continually blows my mind is the Wycliffe Bible translators. So there were, there were almost 10 uh, religious pavilions. So it was like, you know, the Mormon church, Greek Orthodox, uh, the Billy Vatican, Graham. Billy Graham, which was a phenom. Um, and I think it's this funny thing of just like religion in these capacities was very much about artifacts, very much about like introducing people to the myth and like really getting people stoked and like seduced by that myth. But then you had very tailored experiences also where it was like for in the Vatican for example like a rotating floor that literally mm -hmm. you like went in front of the Pieta and then you got spit out in the chapel that could seat 3,000 people and you're like okay I guess I'll pray yeah. to God in here for a little bit like so I think there, there's and, and, you know when you're in the Vatican there's like lights and music and there's yeah. a very specific soundtrack and it was like you know, how could you not be seduced by Catholicism? Mm -hmm. I'm like a mm -hmm. recovering Catholic, so like I can say this, but you know, it's very seductive. It's like yeah. amazing and it's and it's like pizzazz. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think they really played into that very well. Um, but this Wycliffe Bible translator, so they had a pavilion called 2000 Tribes, which their whole thing was like, literally the noble savage argument of just like, look at these set. It was a mural that was like, 70 feet long or something, seven phases of converting people in the rainforest. And then like you saw this mural and we're supposed to be completely captivated by 
someone in Peru coming to Jesus and realizing that they didn't have to like be a warring tribe anymore. And then you go into a room that like tries to recruit you to be a Bible translator. So it's also this like, it was, it was functional. And like, I, I was talking to this gentleman who is making a documentary right now on the Mormon church at the world's fair. And this allegedly for them was like their coming out party that they were like, mm-hmm. we are the church of Latter-day Saints. We want people. And they had a three quarter size replica of the yeah. Salt Lake city, like massive, massive church. That is the mainstay. And you know, just to think about someone going around and being confronted with this, I can only imagine also kind of like a conflict of conscience in a way of just like, what is this? Like, do I believe in Christian science or am I a Greek Orthodox or am I a Latter-day Saint now? Like, it's it's very interesting to just think of mm. how that was kind of pitched so full frontal when these kind of mm. economic elements were a little bit more, I guess, subversive in a way. Mm-hmm. But I think what's also weird in the guidebook is that when you look at it, and I mean, I because I didn't go to the fair, and I mean, obviously, like, seeing the Pietas, you know, it's an experience. I've seen it in Italy, or sorry, Vatican City. But, um, but you know, basically, you, like, look at this page. Like, there's a page in the book where it's, like, the Mormon church, Rheingold beer, um, you know, the, like, equitable life tabulators, and I think the post office, and it's just, like, a page, and the way that it's all flattened, and it's just, like, yeah. lulls, like, what are you all doing there together? You know, like, it's just all kind of on the same level, and that's kind of another thing that's just funny about it, is, yeah. it's like, well, everything's just, you know, like, it's just a box to tick off, and obviously, yeah. it's not the same thing when you're there, you know, and I think that there's, like, another meta thing here, where it's, like, it's kind of like an art fair, <laughs> you know, it's, like, something <laughs> stick out, somebody has the shiny Anish Kapoor for, like, the Instagram moment, and some but he doesn't but um but like that there's like there's a flattening that happens in the guide that's mm. also kind of wonderful with that but it also you know it shows you that like there are just some countries that have spot after spot after spot in all these different ways in some cultures and then other things that just crop up for a second and leave you know it's like you know like indonesia okay hi bye like and that's it <laughs> it's just it's it's just gone and it's you know what now like the fourth largest population in the world yeah. you know and it's uh it's wild the lack of curiosity about the world while saying it's a small world after all which also debuted there um you know that's that that it's kind of, it's very strange but even just like that flattening is hilarious to me because we yeah. have all these scrapbooks of people like you know certain pavilions gave you like a postcard and were like what were your favorite pavilions and like what did you see today and what time did you get here what time did you leave like documentation was a big part i think of a, a multitude of pavilions comically hmm. but to think of that flattening, because someone's like, oh, the IBM Pavilion movie, like, the line is two hours. That's what they're telling. I'll go to the Mormon church. Like, just that it actually also is something that someone's like, oh, there's no line over there. I'll go to that. And you're getting literally, like, indoctrinated with capitalism or, like, yeah. being cornered by, like, a Bible translator to try and be recruited to go to Argentina. Like, it's just, it's bonkers, yeah. in a way. <laughs> Although the internet is that, right? Like, yeah. You could literally go anywhere yeah. and someone's like, hi, you want to hang out? Like, same same thing. Yeah. Um, but to do it in physical space still kind of blows my mind. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like we can't enter social media and the internet in this panel because it's so big um you know and there's so many subjects that we could talk about like yeah i mean we haven't even talked about what gets a nation what gets a continent what get like there's so many all of those kind of issues we could really also go into um 
But since we've been talking for about an hour, uh, and before I do ask the last questions, thank you so much to both of you for talking to all both of you and you. Um, we're and, one person. Yeah, we're all. I just travel in your pocket. Like that's My just, brain yeah. just went, You two are. Too yeah. Um, but and also to all of you for being here. So before I ask if you have questions or if anyone on the live video has questions. Um, <laughs> yes, hello. Uh, we, we wanted to just ask you all, um, Lynn, you know, do you have any publications or projects that are coming up or anything you're excited about? Oh, and there's also the car that's now going to be up at the Queens Museum, right? The um, Robert Moses panorama car or whatever that's being, oh, you know, so like, is there anything upcoming <laughs> that you're excited about? So the car, the car, the panorama car is a part of like a larger massive project that's happening right now, which is, I'm like, we're going to talk later about this more in depth, but like yes. we're working on a, a grant to do a full overhaul of the panorama, mm -hmm. wherein, because the panorama technically right now displays January 1, 1992. That's the last time we updated it. It used to be updated every year for city planning, et cetera, et cetera. So to try and bring it up to the present, but also talk about the differences that have occurred mm -hmm. and what that city planning has done to the city in mm -hmm. the categories of land, water, money, and people. So we're looking at all five boroughs. There's going to be you know 16 different spots that we highlight. We're making a digital twin, which is literally happening next week. So you'll be able to like pin archival material on it and have an audio guide playing and like be in mm -hmm. the model, zoom in, zoom out, mm -hmm. like massive, massive, massive for 2024. So Yay. Wow. many a thing. Cool. That's like my Good obsession level. right now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Fingers, Fingers crossed. Um, and the car was, people would actually, in the World's Fair in 64, sat in that car and rode it, right? So it was, it was meant to simulate a helicopter ride at 2,500 feet above the panorama. So there was a, an amazing audio guide by Lowell Thomas, who was a really prominent broadcaster at the time. And you would go around and see the panorama and then get spit out and go upstairs and like see it. And yeah. there were different New York City exhibits and things like that. So we have a car that we're working on restoring um, and we're working on restoring another we have a really fun bell telephone serpentine booth which was oh, made yeah. and manufactured for the fair yeah it was the first touch tone which was a push tone push button phone excuse me at that time so working on kind of conserving that and just trying to think about like oral histories using these opportunities to like get people to sit in these things and be like wow, I remember, I'm gonna give you this 90 second tidbit about my time on the panorama ride, or like what I saw when I was in this telephone booth when I was 15. Um, so again, just trying to like pull more people into the archive. I love that point you made about power, because I feel like that's also very, like I'm not a traditional archivist in any way, shape or form, so I feel like also like, I don't know any more than anyone else in this room about the 64 World's Fair. Like you could tell me something and like it's an opinion and it's a feeling or it's a, reflection and like that's worthy of being in the archive that's important so um i just really want to like embrace that multitude and and that's like kind of the next two years for me <laughs> like, wow that's two awesome. to three on the docket yeah yeah good luck and yeah. congratulations yeah. on getting to work yeah, yeah. Right. i'll keep you you are we will all be in yeah. the loop yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and both of you, do you want to share anything? We talked I, a little about your residency that's coming up, but is there anything else that... What are, why don't you about? talk to what's going on this fall? Because you, yeah, yeah, so there's going to be um, a, another solo show at the Shirley Fitterman Art Center, which is part of CUNY, um, uh, Manhattan Borough Community, Community College. 
Um, and so it's going to be a reimagining of this show um, with the addition of delving deeper into the American Home Pavilion, which is the one that's sort of not totally working right now in its little rotation. Oh, oh come on. <laughs> it's having, it's like so, a, God. Has no, like a lazy eye. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're, gonna, we're working on it. Um, so looking into sort of going deeper into housing segregation and then expanding like the wallpaper situation, um, it will also have a section that's mm -hmm. a totally new work of a kind of model home installation. So I'm going to do some interventions in mid-century furniture, you know, have some collages, have wallpaper, have, you know, so you can kind of experience that like a show showroom of a home. Yeah. Um, so that's the next sort of big thing with that. And then we're going to do as part of that, um, as part of this research, I found these things called uh, Thousand Lanes, which is a magazine that was in Long Island, specifically in Levittown, that was like a quarterly publication that would be like contractors and, you know, self-improvement DIY home project kind of stuff. And so we're going to do a new publication that is a subversion on that to t sort of detail some of the stuff we weren't able to put into the guidebook. Yeah, the riveting titles of the articles, like There is a Fungus Among Us and, <laughs> yeah. um, and the Power of Frames. So I'm very excited yeah. to get into that. Um, yeah, so yeah. That'll, that'll be September. And then Joanna has another solo show coming up in Germany in um, in uh, November. November and I think that we're going to expand one of our earlier projects for that the Sears catalog and um, the book right now is at Freeze um, at the Shed in Hudson Yards so um, this book and the two other books are all with printed matter it's the first table when you go in on your left they like gave us a nice space so I was very happy to see that yesterday um, so you can go and pick that up there and then this book right now is, uh, is for sale at Karma and um, printed matter and here. and here and the whole gallery and I say the whole last because we're going to be doing the New York Art Book Fair with the whole gallery in October. So uh, yeah, so that's all coming up. Great. Yeah. Congratulations on yeah. all of your upcoming projects. Yeah. Um, so does before we wrap things up and chat more casually, does anyone have questions either from the live um, or from yeah. the like no one's too dead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can I yeah. question? Yeah. Um, in this moment, okay, uh, I, um, I was born in the 70s, and I knew from the beginning of my life that having a home, my house, my home, is impossible, impossible, mm. because it's such a huge project. It's No, it will never happen. I will never mm. have my place. And uh, so right now people are taking the huge mortgages, you know, this kind of stuff, and um, are dying from being so tired to just make it happen. And then we have these new people, and what to do? Do you have any uh, tips? What can we do? Because you are ahead of us uh, 50 <laughs> years, so... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's such yeah. a huge question. The difficulty in answering that is that we're still struggling under the same kind of, a lot of the problems that were happening and instituted in the World's Fair are still here. You know, mortgages in the United States are still insane. Um, the So I don't think that I have answer to that. But. Yeah, but one of the things that's interesting is that I think that it's something like, you know, 80% of um, immigrants who come over here within one generation have some, I forget exactly what, I read a statistic on this the other day, but there mm -hmm. is a demonstrable wealth 
gain that, you know, within a generation that something like 80% of people who come over here do get. There is, and it's not something, it's not a mobility that's open to everybody here by any stretch of the imagination, but there is still something that is going on in this country. It's like we included this PGA work line that I took out of context because screw is Republican politics, but um, I took it way out of context. But the, there's, there's a kernel of truth to this, that um, when you go to an American embassy abroad, there is an equally long line of demonstrators and people applying for visas mm. to come over. And um, this country still does, like in a weird vampiric way, benefit from this incredible energy that immigrants bring to this country, you know? And this like incredible ability to, I just don't know, like what, but our workforce, you know, like in New York City, it's like you look at the restaurants here, people are not compensated properly. They're not compensated at minimum wage. They're hardly compensated at all. And we take advantage of that, our whole agriculture system takes advantage of that and um, I imagine that there's going to be some stratified system like that that happens in any country that has refugees like that where you know people if they're able to economically be integrated will be taken advantage of and will at some point some of them will get ahead a lot of them won't you know but it's 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 grotesque it's not happy yeah <laughs> I mean, yeah. I don't know. It's such a very interesting question. I mean, I think about if we go back to like this idea of um, like when countries are sort of developing in, in different ways or different moments and they kind of hit the same sort of peaks where like, oh, we're getting a little bit more prosperity. We're getting a little bit more influx of, of um, cash or huge the economy or whatever. Um, I think about it like still in like a media studies kind of framework, which is when you think about um, like Stuart Hall, who's a theorist, like talks a lot about representation in the media and that, you know, to combat stereotypes, one thing was like, oh, we have all these like negative stereotypes of different people. Um, and so we, the counter would be to make good stereotypes, like, you know, or whatever. And, and it's true to have a diversity of different sort of people. Um, but really he's like that, you know, the fixed, the meaning is not fixed on anything, right? So it's kind of like, it can always be manipulated. So having a good thing, um, which, and so his solution is like, you just have to understand that it's all a construction and be critical of it. So I think that like, I mean, I don't know in terms of policy and stuff like that, how that would work with the idea of like anything recognizing like, like if it sounds too good to be true, or I don't know, like you know that it's all a construction for often for only the people in power and if we can kind of recognize that and always kind of have a little bit of like well I don't know but you know I don't know yeah. Yeah. Anyone yeah. who's ever signed a lease knows that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I feel kind of. I think this is. Even if we are like 50 years ahead in a way, we are still like right back in a way where we started because it's also like the 60s and immigration and people like having the world at their fingertips by the 90s and 2000s. Like my, I'm I'm first generation on my mom's side, and like from my grandmother to my mom. Great job, excellent. My mom did great. I don't know when I'm ever going to be able to own a house. Like, yeah. I so it's also yeah. this like funny thing of like plateauing. Also, after that moment of um, advancement or promotion by way of work and initiative and resolve and like difference from a prior scenario. Once we get into then this scenario, you're for lack of a better word, like kind of fucked unless you have a bit of a silver spoon in your mouth. And I think that's what we're starting to realize of like this second and third generation is actually having a way harder time because the people who thought they could pull the strings on an immigrant, on an immigrant population and use them to their own benefit 
actually just ended up making the gap even bigger. Like it's just right. the COVID, yes. it's the COVID gap. Like, yeah. you know, it was a beautiful, and even when you were talking about optimism and utopia, I was like, COVID to me, looking back now was like the type of utopia in a way that I want, where it's like mutual aid, people are really taking reactive choices like in their community with their neighbor. Like that's amazing. I feel like I've not seen that in a really yeah. long time, but to be necessitated by this like horrible schism between like, you know, Elon Musk and Bezos making like bajillions of dollars yeah. and literally all of us being like, okay, hey, we're on unemployment again for another six weeks. Like how, how do you balance that? Like, I don't know. Like I almost feel like I'm more, I don't want to say I'm excited, but there's almost more like promise in all of this shit having happened in the last two to three years. And then you all being like, okay, but let's remember we're humans. Like, we're not corporations, we're not, you know, and, and what do we need? What do, how do we build houses together? Or how do we like mm. make that reality actually happen for everyone? Like you, you're having the, you're able to have those conversations in a way, even if it is really hard and slow and, and taxed, obviously yeah. because of the like, it's just horrible, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I wanna be optimistic. I'm so yeah. optimistic about like what we can do by way of just being like a little critical and making moves based on that and knowing that we don't need to be seduced yeah i think that optimism is a really great you know like uh, i think we've now unpacked a lot of the things that you're talking about with this kind of like where that optimism came from and why we don't have it now mm -hmm. um but then also i mean i skipped this question because i we talked about it a little bit earlier and we all decided we were sick of talking about the pandemic yeah. <laughs> but i was thinking of asking everyone on the panel like you know, these projects all kind of happened during the pandemic, right? Like you joined the Queen's Museum during the pandemic, yeah. you know, and that it was a just different, the things have changed so dramatically in the way that I think about society because of the pandemic. And these projects in a way are also about these kind of small worlds that are kind of creating, trying to create ideas about societies, whether that's the utopic society or the perfect capitalist society or whatever. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for having this exhibition with us at yeah. Projects too. I have to say. Yeah, much. thank you. Also, congratulations. And thank you for taking, you know, a Q&A question. Thank you for taking my questions. Um, and thank you, Lynn, so much for being here with us. It's yes, really Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's so cool. To the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So, and thank you for doing the panel. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having thank us. You yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yay. Bye. Bye, Instagrammies. Bye, bye, lives. Bye. Okay, we're back. Hello. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> and we're back. And Woo! we're back. Um, so, okay, we would like to give you a list of things to go see. So one of the first things is that we're actually going to do something unusual today, which will maybe lead into a future thing. Um, we were able to chat with some of our friends at Beverly's the other night, um, and you'll get to hear all of the ambiance and insanity of Beverly's going on during an <laughs> opening. Jacob, could you tell us just a little bit about Beverly's and Leah and kind of 
things about how that got started and how you met Leah, maybe? Well, that's, I mean, that's a very good question. I met Leah at spring break when it was at the post office, however, however many years ago mm -hmm. that was. And uh, she had some work up a couple doors down from where I had some work or, or I, was, I had curated a show. And I just started talking to her and she seemed pretty amazing. And by, the, by at that point they had already run, they were already running Beverly's. And so I went and saw Beverly's and it was a bar in the Lower East Side that was also a gallery. Um, and it was a very much a bar about the community. Yes, that yes, that's in. the thing I love about Beverly's. Um, and I feel a lot of kinship with them in their, I mean, I, I think they're, because they're a first floor space and because of the fact that it's known as being kind of a bar and club and art gallery, it's much more like open in a way for people to just kind of walk in off the street. You do have to pay like a cover charge because you can drink for free after you're in, at least right now. This, this is, is the second. This is the second iteration of Beverly's. Yeah. Um, during the pandemic, a lot of crazy shit happened and they had to move. Mm. Um, <laughs> long story short. <laughs> but um, I, I deeply admire the model that is being developed there and everything yeah. that they've been able to support and produce for the community. And just the, the energy around it and the kind of uh, cross-pollination of Beverly's. Yeah, uh, for sure. And where else did we... we Leah's just such a, a worker, just does all sorts of different things. And it's you know, the whole team at Beverly's is really wonderful. Um, and there's like some artists who kind of do recurring things there, but mostly it's new like shows that happen. Um, so... You know, yeah, so in the pandemic, they had to kind of reopen um, in this new space that's at 5 Eldridge. And so now you'll hear us chatting with a couple of artists who are in the current exhibition, which is called Fire Sign. So there's three artists. There's Kenny Wu, Chris Herity, and Marie Ann Muller. Okay, uh, <laughs> here's our conversation with those three. <laughs> yeah. The train is right here. Yeah, yeah, it's really loud. Hello, I can Ryan. hear the, uh, it's nice. So how do you feel about the show? Uh, I'm excited about the show. One thing that I really liked was the weird sculptures. So we're at, did you already say where we're at and stuff? Okay, we're at Beverly's in the Lower East Side. Dude. And there's a lot of fucking A bros around here, which is totally cool. But Maria's like, Perfect. Okay. I need the smoking baby is coming up. So Holy good. Shit. All right, please describe this for Wait a minute. our listeners. <laughs> the smoking baby? Yeah. What is so the smoking the U, baby? <laughs> that's the European uh, Is it a little pad. binky? Does it have a binky in its, <laughs> its mouth like with a cigarette? It's like a pacifier baby oh with yes. a cigarette in it. Oh, wow. And I call it the smoking baby. It's my favorite picture of the... <laughs> Because you love Hi. smoking babies. Oh, these campaigns we haven't like met yet. I'm Kenny. Nice to meet you, Kenny. Chris. Chris, nice to meet you. Chris. I'm Chris, too. Shit, okay. Easy to remember. Jacob. Yeah. Jacob, nice to meet you. How's it going? Good. Have you guys ever been to, like, uh, material art fair? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think maybe I met you guys there. Oh, cool. 2019. I'm sorry if I don't remember it. It's okay. It's completely... It's such a blur, 2019 and then going into 2020. Oh, yeah. I think 2019 we had uh, Juan Capistran and... Uh, Hazel. It could have been 2020, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we showed uh, Car uh, well, Wells. Wells. Yeah. 
Wells Chandler. Yeah. And, uh, oh, I was super sick during that. I think I may have had COVID. <laughs> um, but it was yeah. like right at the point where no one in the United States really knew about COVID when we right. did material that year. We were, I was thinking, is it is it a good idea to travel at this point? But yeah. it's just like fear mongering. Like, yeah. And then it never ended up really coming. So I thought it was going to be the same thing. Yeah. And it wasn't. You know, like it, it, it really like SARS was exactly the opposite of what happened with COVID. Yeah. You know, like everyone was like, oh, yeah it'll be fine nobody here is gonna get it like it was blown off like that right. so even though on the plane it hit me and i felt sick it was like eh, whatever like yeah. it when, can't wait, be when was it the end of 20 uh beginning of 20 march was it march no the very beginning the end of february is when i took the plane to material art fair in mexico gotcha. city yeah, yeah. and then right at the beginning of march i was like oh shit i'm sick Right. Like, it Dang. was right when... No, yeah. it wasn't March. Was it the end of February or beginning of February? Um, anyway, so what were you doing at Material Art Fair back then in 2020? I was, I was like, hel- I was, like, just helping, like, produce the Beverly's show that was part of Material in 2020. Oh, my God. It was oh, yeah. so good. Yeah. It Wait, was so in good. The, in the, it was in... The stairway ramp. Yeah, I remember. It was like oh, yeah. three floors of three shit floors. that was there. That was, yeah. And Dana was there, too, who's here yeah. tonight. Yeah, yeah it yeah. was great. Yeah, How I was many... just working in the back end, basically, like, trying to source materials for that artists needed, like, in a, like in the last, mm-hmm. like, the, the 11th hour before the show and, yeah. and like, um, that doesn't sound schlepping like things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was doing. Well, Doesn't sound like material art. I, I was I was also taking photos. <laughs> yeah. I remember. Yeah. Very cool. That was no. And that brooding thing. a lot because it was a very I I could sense that something was really dark was about to happen. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. we I mean we also just loved that like how weird that space was like it was yeah. just it was just a ramp. No, it was yes. a good. It was a weird. Yeah. Space. And I think I, now that I think about it more, I think I actually that was the year that I met you guys because I remember having like a kind of a more heightened sense of like people are very important and connections are very important (laughs) in this world and like uh, just like I met you guys and thought like what you were doing was a lot like what we're doing with Beverly's and that we would be good like it would be good for us just all to know each other and like support each other yeah and I and I think yeah. also there was definitely a moment where um, you guys were all sitting down on the ramp okay. and I and I had walked down and and was like all oh my god hey what's up Beverly's what's <laughs> how you doing and like was very excited to see I was so excited that Beverly's this, was there yeah, yeah like a group of yeah. uh, you know Beverly's always is always there because last time they were there uh, they, they had this like uh, space oh the crazy space they had the year before yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it was like a, what it the was fuck like, was that it was like the back room for two years of the space for two years prior to that yeah we had that little space it was actually a locker room for the high ally players was it? I, I kept thinking like what very could this sexy because <laughs> yeah because material uh, oh, at right. Frontone which was like a high ally court or whatever really? you call it an arena stadium yes 
so you couldn't like make out the infrastructure of the court or or whatever but that little locker room was was part of the that's the so highlight awesome. dude there's so much stadium. energy in a box in a locker room that you guys were just exploiting <laughs> <laughs> that was like it was a, it There's was no way to underground I guess. yeah yeah the space it was yeah. it was the a space wonderful. in between the space, the space. if you guys happened this past week too right yeah material yeah. happened uh at a different time than it normally does usually it would happen in uh fe- february oh gotcha but this year it happened sort of like the last week in april oh i think yeah. cool i wasn't yeah. able to make it down this year yeah were you guys yeah. there too no we didn't go this year oh, gotcha. um yeah. We went the last three years, two years before that, yeah. um, and this year we didn't apply because we just didn't oh know what was going to happen with COVID. No, actually, Leah and I, like, we sort of came up with Beverly's together, and like, uh, other people too, Dan City. Um. Kenny, how did you end up meeting and having a show here? Uh, I met Leah through her boyfriend, Tommy. Cool. Yeah. That's that. What about you? Uh, well, I met her through social media, and cool. we have a lot of like things in common. And what I did in Copenhagen, I used to be a curator too, and like doing shit myself yeah, of just like yeah. the uh, good old... looking for new artists, uh, looking for people. That, you know, Great. I used to be a DJ too, so I have like a lot of the so you like the, the fluidity of the space. So this space. Yeah. Once I really met her in person, it really spoke to me and we just clicked very well because I think we are very similar in our personalities of who we are. And that's how I met her and she saw my artwork and I got the show now with the, these two great people. Actually, I come from photography too, but moved into sculpture from that. Um, so yeah. it just made sense that it was the three of us. Uh, that's so interesting, yeah. So I always talk about time and everything in my pieces uh, on an environmental aspect as well, like the time and the water and the ice and the melting of things and the fish, the contamination of the seas. So tell me about your work then, because I really love the piece that's over in the corner over here um, with the blue frame around it. Yeah, the bullfight. Yeah, that was taken in Mexico City this past March. Yeah. Can you tell me more about like taking that photograph and also like do you consider yourself a documentary photographer or are you kind of in between things? Uh, My background actually comes from motion so I work mainly in film and TV as a director of photography and uh, photo is sort of a personal project Mm -hmm. I worked on. Um, That was taken this past March in Mexico City. It was my first time there. All my friends have been talking about Mexico City the past six years. I don't know. I always want to check it out. Yeah. So I've had yeah. quite a few friends move there. In yeah, the last, same. Like couple of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, yeah. There's an enclave of New Yorkers yeah. who are there. Yeah. Yeah. And do you all live in New York generally yes. right now? Yeah. Okay. Yes. So you're based, you're based, you're based in New York. Yeah, no, I love New York. Uh, it's very diverse and very vibrant. And yeah, I live in Brooklyn. It kind of reminds me of the, the hood I have in uh, Copenhagen and the vibe. And That's great. Yeah. As an aside, thank you for like coming out of your show to talk to us. Cause, um, 
it's also really great to just like have a moment during an opening where you actually talk about the work. Yeah, especially yeah, an opening sure. where you're like everybody's drinking and we're all inside. I know. And I feel like that. Each other. I actually haven't talked about the work in like hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, that's what nice. happens. It's okay. Know? I don't it's need very, to. Yeah. You're, you're you can, you, you you can, can join me. Yeah, yeah, you can join me. Um, you just have to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Madeline. I am Chris's girlfriend. Oh. <laughs> nice to meet you. That, nice to meet you. Um, Artis. Yes. So. And then, and then she's gone. <laughs> no, I'm just here. So you were telling us about the matador. Oh yes, uh, that happened when I was trying to figure out things to do because it was the first international trip I've done since COVID. Yeah. I was trying to figure out unique Mexico City events I can be involved. So one of the things I found out was like this bullfight and I, I didn't realize bullfight was still a thing. I thought it was banned all over the world but apparently it's still available in Mexico and Spain I believe. So I went to a Lucha Libre wrestling match and then the bullfight was like another thing. When I went there it was like whoa it's like this very uh, unique space that I've never been I think a lot of local people were it's like a thing that a pastime that they are doing. Yeah. And so can you tell us about your work that are not wooden frames but are in yellow No, they're frames. actually yellow frames. I think they're metal. But the lighting in Beverly's is like very, very right. pink, so it has made them so look can tan. Read, it can read like a blonde wood. But um yeah, other people have said it. So yeah, but what's funny about the work that's being shown right now is that it's all within like a four block radius of where I live. And um, it spans between 2018 to 2022. So it goes from like a lead up through the pandemic to like now. Okay, if you're gonna give us a synopsis of the project. Yeah. I think it's just like focusing on an ecosystem and like, um, like physical structures, buildings, pavement, roads, and like that's like also like a visceral thing. And then people that are sort of interacting with it, destroying it, rebuilding it, altering it. I'm yeah. sure you've seen so many things that come and go and changes, whether it's a good thing or... 15 years, yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, that's a good that's a good point. Like, um, I lived here for 10 years before I started photographing Chinatown. And it just sort of was like, a, at a certain point, it felt like a visceral urge to document certain things that I had been walking by and seeing for so long. Yeah, and I feel like all of the works in the show are kind of dealing with this, are dealing with different kinds of ecosystems, right? Like whether it's your work and your sculpture of the koi fish and the plastic animals inside of the koi fish and ideas about ecosystems there, or your work that you're talking about, like living in Chinatown and the ways that like different social ecosystems are interacting in Chinatown. Like there's a lot of overlap in that. The whole idea of like capturing time or capturing a moment where for me the objects are like a 
they are like an image, but they are acting as a sculpture. So they kind of like mix the mediums of what that means, but also socially or socio-political of how what that means for me, for example, with the environment, all these plastic objects encapsulated into this water-based rubber that looks like it looks like the eyes, so or it looks like a clear encapsulation of something pure, but that is at the same time con that contaminating it and ruining its own base. So it's these kind of like very also. Kenny said that he actually comes from moving pictures or from the more of emotion. And it's done with like a photo, it's like, um, it's always motion based, but it captures a still idea of what that means, like the moment of that. Yes. Where my sculptures talks about, yes, I encapsulate that moment. And it's a meta idea of the moment of what's encapsulated inside of it and what that means. And the sculpture becomes something that's there always. Uh, depending on its material. So these are like the rubber things that looks like the water or it looks like the ice, yeah. where the ice is like disappearing or melting. So it's like a time-based time, time based still frame of everything. So in that way, it kind of fits really well together. If you have anything coming up or anything that you want to share with us too, because I don't want to take you away forever from your opening. And thank you for taking the time also to talk with us. Oh, it's nice. Now it's a good break. No, no, you're fine. You just had a bunch of fans show up. So. Friends, not fans. <laughs> same. Is that the same thing? Friends. I don't know. Um, no, I just wanted to know if you had anything that you wanted to tell us about or that, you know, that you are, that you have coming up or more about your work um, before we wrap it up because I want you to be able to go and talk to your friends slash fans who just showed up. No, I'm, I'm quite new to the photography exhibition scene, um, so I just had a photo exhibit like in October, so that's my first experience. Very so cool. Leo is very graceful. Where, where grateful. was the photo exhibit? It was at Chinatown Souk. Um, very cool. Yeah, yeah, yes. it's great. Yeah, I got a grant from, it was like a COVID grant. Um, cool, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. That's yeah. great. Yeah. And what about either of you? Do you have things coming up or like things that you'd like to share? Right now I don't have anything coming up, but it's always, everything with me is a process, so I have always yeah. have ideas of processes coming out. Someone <laughs> stealing yeah, my cigarette. Yeah, I'm yeah, keeping it in! Yeah, so the, 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 the DJ just showed up, give him a cigarette, come on. Yeah. <laughs> I have this smoking gun. Alright, Maria, I'm coming back to you. I'm going to continue working. I made four you. minutes for myself. So. Give him the baby Well, I don't, yeah, personally, I don't have any shows yes. lined up after this. I also think that, like, I'm, in a way, still just trying to figure out this project. I'm sharing awesome. your stuff. Yeah. I don't no, know about I, what I, you said. And I thought about find it, out if Maria has things yeah, to say. Like, but really, like, thank you for talking with us. For sure. Really great. Um, for sure. I feel very excited. And also, Kenny has, like, a ton of fans. Okay. We're showing up. He says they're his friends. But yeah. <laughs> this is the gallery you have in Chelsea. 26th Street. It's on the 8th floor, though. Okay. So cool. don't miss that. People do. They're like, where the fuck are you? Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, thanks um, for spending time with us. Thanks for coming to the show. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Let's do a quick wrap up. Oh, yeah. Um, thank you so much for doing the show. Can you tell me the show title, all of you? Fire Sign. Fire Sign. Fire Sign. 
fireside. Awesome. I'm a Libra, but that's okay. I'm an Aries, so I am the fireside. I'm an Aries too. Oh yes, I'm wow. on the cusp of being I'm also like a Libra. Uh, so. What's up? October 3rd. I actually identify more with the water. I'm a Scorpio moon. <laughs> Stingers. I know. I love. I, I, I learned, love all three of you. I learned a lot. About, there was a lot of time during lockdown. I learned a lot about astrology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, my idea was like that's a, excellent. A, uh, How the fuck did you come up with fire sign? It was actually Leo who came uh, up with it. And again, it's like her intuition. That's always what she's been talking about with me. Like. We had like the same intuition of each other, of meeting. And when she came up with the title, I was like, yes. Like, that's exactly what it is. To see weird intuitions are things that make sense but make no sense, and the oppositions of things. Like I do have to know, it is Taurus season, but all good. Just want to point that out. That is good, thank you, thank you. Well, thank you, Fire Sign, for hanging out and chatting with us. Um, I'm excited to see more of your work in the future. Yeah. Cool. Thanks All right, let's go back inside. Cause, like, I don't want to. I don't. We shouldn't stand out here any longer. It's your show. Okay. What else do we want to go see? Okay, we're back. Um, so another thing that I wanted to recommend as a show to go see is Wasaic's giant summer show that they're having. So. Um, you know, Wasaic has this every year in the summer, and this year there's a show called A Tournament of Lies, which is a pretty great title, I think. I think it's taken from an R.E.M. song, if I remember correctly. Is it fucking really? Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. R.E.M., they quoted at the beginning. Uh, uh-huh. Yes, of their tournament, press release. Tournament, a tournament, a tournament of lies. Awful meal solutions, oh awful meal alternatives, and I decline. It's the end of the world as we know it. Oh, you're just saying for all of us. Of course. That was so beautiful. I do karaoke. I'm not scared of karaoke. I'm fucking terrified of karaoke and also fuck you, I'll never do it. Um, And that is that is the task of all of you to get Chris to do karaoke. (laughs) Yeah, it'll never happen. So there's 46 artists that are all going to be in this exhibition. So when I say huge summer show, I mean huge summer show. It's going to be enormous um so other than definitely go check that out it's open through like september something september 17th so you have tons of time so if you're up by wasaic at all over the summer you should definitely stop by and they also have block parties um set for august 20th and july 23rd 23rd. yep 12 to 10 p.m that sounds super fun yeah a block party in wasaic only if they have sprinklers Oh my god. It's yes. burning hot inside of field projects right now. Oh, yeah. So our friend Noel Velez stopped by and recommended a show at O'Flaherty's. O'Flaherty's, yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's on view right now. That's called Bobo, the Association Age. So go check that out if you're over on Avenue C and 11th. That's O'Flaherty's. And um, we also wanted to recommend our friend Keisha. Woo woo! So Keisha Prolio Martin who was showing as an artist-in-residence at Art Shack. Keisha's show at Olympia is opening this Thursday, tomorrow. Um, So May 26th at Olympia, which is 41 Orchard Street. Um, I highly recommend you go check it out. Keisha is an amazing, figurative, joyous painter. 
Um, and these will be an exhibition of new works by her. Well, I haven't done it yet. I don't think you have either, but the PS1 Deanna Lawson show uh, is supposed to be very amazing. Oh, yeah. A couple of people told us about that, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I had a chance to meet Deanna years ago at grad school. Got a great vibe from yeah. her. Super smart, yeah. really interesting, very kind person. Um, and so I'm really happy to see how successful that they've become. Yeah. Can you just describe like slightly her work for everyone? What it's, is it? What's the medium? It's, it's photography. It's photography, but the it's so much bigger than that. Um, but photography is the basis of their practice. One of my favorite pieces by Deanna is a series of photographs taken by a prison guard of a family over the years. Um, so it, they're kind of, you know, like they're kind of shitty snapshots of people of like their kids and the mom visiting the dad in jail. They're in like an awkward jail, jail setting. Meet, yeah, yeah, yeah. setting meeting area for families. Um, and clearly it's like they gave the camera to the whatever guard and said, Hey, can you take a picture of our, of us as a family? And then there, it's the same family over, I think it's like six years or something like that. And them just changing and growing up. Um, and that was, that's the most heartbreaking, uh, work really. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, the couple of images I've seen online advertising for the show are super heartbreaking as well. So do go, do go. It's important work. Um, but again, it can be pretty intense. Of course. Yeah. The best kind of work is. <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> um, on like a slightly lighter note, our friends at Mrs. Gallery. Our friends at Mrs. Gallery. <laughs> Mrs. Gallery in Maspeth has Chris Boja. Night in the Village. Yeah, uh, and that's up through beginning of July. July 2nd is when it closes. Um, and these are... Shrine painting string shits. They're great. <laughs> <laughs> they are... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing, yes. So um, the very last thing that we want to do is just say thank you to Johanna Herr and Karamar Scheffler you've been so amazing to work with. We're super sad the show has come down. Uh, it is nice to paint the gallery back to <laughs> other colors because the mint parfait was murdering us after a while. Um, <laughs> yes. But the calming green is actually not a calming green. But um, I don't know. Do you have any last thoughts on their show or what you'd like to say to them? Uh, I mean, I would like to say thank you. You guys are amazing. And the amount of work that you put into this show is uh, incredible. Incredible and always surprising to explain it to <laughs> visitors. And they're just like, really? They made the floor? Why, why would they make the floor? Yeah. <laughs> but also, it's just very charming <laughs> to use. Uh, Johanna's word. I'm very proud of the exhibition. Um, and I'm really happy to have gotten to finally work with Johanna, who we've wanted to work with forever. Um, so thank you again. You were amazing. We're sad your show's down, but we are super looking forward to Elle's opening tomorrow night on Thursday, the 26th. And 
Yeah. All right. Okay. We'll see you then. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. This has been Field, Field Pod. Yeah. We did it. We did it. We were good. <laughs> <laughs> we clap for ourselves. We clap like for each other. a bunch of fucking losers. <laughs>